I'm assuming he's drunk. Is this the narrator of this show? <laughs> the horrible St. Patrick's Day massacre that she's wearing. A diamond of bitch. that in your pipe and smoke it welcome to up yours downstairs the podcast from an embarrassing skin condition i'm kelly anakin and i'm tom schneider we are married well you can't blame us for wanting to live in the present so great to be back from hiatus our apartment still isn't clean (laughs) but we did get a chance to fine-tune our snark engines for series two and uh, we hope you enjoyed our new theme song dubstep abby by Cousin Caleb, a.k.a. Cousin Mr. Voldemorton. And we'll be sure to link to the full track again for all of you. And now is probably a good time to let everyone know that if they're only interested in the recap, they should skip ahead about 10 or 15 minutes, because <laughs> now we're going to take care of some family business. <laughs> yes. Uh, we have cousins in eight new countries since our last show. They are Iran, Austria, Vietnam, Cambodia, Macau, Nigeria... Paraguay and Guernsey. And now those last two actually didn't show up in our stats, but we received telegrams letting us know where they were. Uh, so thanks to cousin Natalia. She writes, hi guys, I've been listening to up yours downstairs and I love it. You guys are hilarious. Glad I can satisfy my love of period pieces with my love of snarky commentary. Can't wait to hear the season two episodes. If you do end up doing a show on Gosford Park, be sure to watch the Making of special on the DVD, where Julian Fellows shares lots of interesting anecdotes about his mother's life and service. Keep them coming, Natalia. P.S. I am listening to you from Paraguay. I won't scare you with how long it takes me to download each podcast. So that's another country for your list. Cool. I mean, you know, and you couldn't possibly scare us. I mean, we're <laughs> old enough to remember dial-up. That's So yeah. we've got thick skin. I, I remember the... Commodore 64. Um, <laughs> that's in- I didn't know that Julian Fellows' mother was in service. Yeah, that's true. I feel like I should stop giving him so much flack. Well, I'll give him slightly less flack. All right. He wasn't in service. Th- that's right. We have a missed connection here uh, with the cousin who requested a shout out for Guernsey. I distinctly remember this, specifically saying that she had heard us mention Jersey and that she was a native of Guernsey but currently lived in the United States. Uh, but we can't figure out if you emailed us or Facebooked us or whatever, but we want to give the island of Guernsey a shout out. Uh, we want Leon to be represented along with Le Crapaud. My, my Channel Islands terminology That's there. That's pretty snazzy. Thanks, Wikipedia. And please remind us of your name, Guernsey Cousin. Uh, we feel really bad that we lost track of that. So, We also received a telegram from Cousin Christina, who writes, I decided I should indulge Tom's geography nerd tendencies and write in, I download the podcast from Ukraine, and I'm afraid that I'm not as exotic an international listener as you might be picturing. I'm an American Foreign Service officer posted to Ukraine, Sorry to bust any mental images of haughty Ukrainian Downton devotees. And I think I heard about the show from a friend back home in the States. Downton is super popular with expats here, and I also have friends in Bangladesh, Kazakhstan, and Albania who are obsessed. So hopefully your expat audience will grow, although probably nothing so cool as Satellite Provider. Also, kudos for proving your Geography Master Medal by calling it Ukraine and not THE Ukraine. Nicely done. Oh, thank you. I, being uh, an ignoramus, (laughs) was not aware of the distinction. Mm -hmm. No, And you know what? 
cousin Christina, I'm sure number one that you're plenty hot. <laughs> and number two, you don't need to worry about not being too exotic. Like neither of us has ever even been to Mexico. <laughs> right. Like Canada is as exotic as it gets for us here in this room. So yeah. if you've ever been anywhere outside of North America, uh, you're like a unicorn to us. <laughs> yeah. So very well done. We have had a lot of other telegrams from our cousins over the past few weeks, and we're going to take a minute to share them with you. Cousin Joyce from Columbus, Ohio writes, I love, love, love your show. While visiting my parents, Dad came in after work one day with the season two DVD set. Mom and I promptly freaked out, and the three of us stayed up till 2 a.m. watching all eight episodes. Naturally, I searched iTunes in hopes of extending my DA experience, and there you guys were. When I heard the theme song and heard the line, we're married, but we're not going to be dicks about it, I knew I had found my peeps. Please continue between the season two, three gap with Victorian slash Edwardian culture, which I find so very interesting. Looking forward to your future shows. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, uh, Cousin Joyce. And we put you first because we are both from Ohio originally. That is correct. Go Buckeyes. (laughs) In an earlier episode, we wondered whether Laura Linney had any Oscars. And Cousin Carly has solved a mystery. She says, Hi, Kelly and Tom. Another telegram from your faithful cousin Carly. I did some research on Laura Linney after I listened to today's show because unlike most Downton Abbey viewers, I'm a Laura Linney fan. I doubt I would be, though, if I had watched the episodes on PBS because Netflix has spared me her most punchable moments. (laughs) Anyway, here's what I found out. Laura Linney has a total of zero Oscars, though she has been nominated three times. In 2001, she was nominated for her leading role in You Can Count on Me, but she lost to Julia Roberts and Aaron Brockovich. LL was again nominated in 2005 for Kinsey, supporting role, and lost to Kate Blanchett in The Aviator. Again, in 2008, she was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role for The Savages and lost to Marion Cotillard in La Vie en Rose. She's been nominated for an unreasonable amount of other awards and has won a decent amount, including three Emmys, two Golden Globes, and one SAG Award. That said, I'm sure she's completely insufferable when monologuing from inside the human heart, and I hope to see some of those segments on the DVDs I just ordered. Uh, that's interesting. And I do want to say, Cousin Carly, that the 2001 Oscars were the year I completely lost faith in the Academy because <laughs> of Julia Roberts's Aaron Brockovich win, when clearly it should have been Ellen Burstyn for Requiem for a Dream. Absolutely. However, Laura Linney was excellent, and you can count on me. And I don't totally hate Laura Linney. It's pr- Look, we hate Laura Linney... In, in the masterpiece class, the intro capacity. Right. Otherwise, we don't have much of a problem. She's right. got really cute dimples. <laughs> that she does. Cousin Beckett sends a short note recommending the books Life and Service in the Victorian and Country House by Giles Waterfield and Life Below Stairs in the Victorian and Country House by Sean Evans. That's S-I-A-N. Uh, which we'll be checking out for a more comprehensive fashion backwards on what the non-rich people are wearing this season. Mm-hmm. And Cousin Lauren writes in defense of McGee. Hi, Kelly and Tom. Just wanted to write in to say, keep up the good work and can't wait to start hearing what you thought about season two. Also, I thought maybe McGee could use a little support, seeing as she's the lone American on the cast and gets beat up regularly for it by her mother-in-law and daughters. Anyway, I know Elizabeth McGovern's accent has been an understandable sore spot for Kelly, although the impression you do of her is so dead on and funny, it is scary. Well, when I saw McGee doing an interview on the Today Show a few months back, sporting said annoying accent, I thought, WTF? I remember her in movies in the 80s as a full-blown all-American girl. Well, I have since learned that she has spent the past 20 years living in London. She's married to My Week with Marilyn director Simon Curtis and is raising two teenage daughters. So the mashup accent is legit. 
She's managed, like many of us who live somewhere they didn't grow up, to pick up the cadence and idiosyncrasies of the regional accent. She can't help it. Also, I think a very wealthy American heiress of Cora's time would have been raised with a pseudo-Anglo accent anyway. Why she delivers her lines in her slow RPM is still a little mystery, but I love her anyway. And she rocks those courses. (laughs) That she does. And and actually, I am interested to see, because I believe her mother is going to appear in Series 3, and I'll be interested to see how that accent Absolutely. is, is well, played. Her sort of strange RPM, as mm-hmm. uh, Cousin Lauren says, it's in evidence. I just rewatched The Handmaiden's Tale not that long ago, uh-huh. and she plays Moira in that. And it is like she's got a strange voice. I mean, it's unique. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and I think obviously it's just kind of been influenced by her time in in britain right. so anyway but thank you lauren we appreciate the defense of mcgee and i'll try to keep up with the uh impressions <laughs> yes and we put out a call to the cousins to see if anyone besides julian fellows has ever used the term hungry hundreds and cousin leo answered <clears throat> dearest cousins i love history too and i was curious about the hungry hundred i thought it might be a translation from italian but no luck there However, I did find that around this time there were several groups that the Royal Navy referred to as the Hungry Hundred. The affectionately offensive name was given to batches of Royal Naval Reserve officers, drafted from civilian occupations, trawler and fishing captains, etc., transferred to the Royal Navy in the 1890s and later in 1912 and 1957. Other batches were similarly called the Hungry Half Hundred, the Starving Fifty, and the Thirsty Thirty. So, maybe it is popular classical music that would commonly be played by military bands. This should be called Leo Imagines History. I mean, it sounds pretty dead on to me. Yeah. That seems like the most logical explanation. Yeah. And it's just weird that it wouldn't have come up anywhere else, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm very happy to have at least gotten some kind Yeah. Of it sounds, there. to me, I think, well done, Leo. Your imagination is as good as fact, <laughs> as far as we're concerned. Yes. And finally, we have a telegram from Cousin Alan. My dearest cousins, you are both very entertaining, though at times harshly judgmental, and quite informed individuals. You have been my companions in my automobile while driving to work. I chuckle, I sigh, and almost cry as I recall the amazing moments of Downton Abbey Series 1. I am a film major, so I do appreciate it when you mention technical aspects of the show, which I do very much enjoy. Downton does have beautiful cinematography that I myself have described as quite West Wing-like, so when I heard you mention Aaron Sorkin, I did a small celebratory dance. Keep up the amazing work. I hope to be next week's Cousin of the Week. Five Maggie Smiths to you. Yours always, your third half-cousin twice removed, Viscount Alan Mahana. Uh, well, thank you very much, Cousin Viscount Alan. Uh, you have the most elaborate sign-off <laughs> of anyone who's written to us, which we found very impressive. Yes. So we're awarding you Cousin of the Week because of that, not because you requested it. That's right. And also, you gave us a great idea because you mentioned that you feel that we're overly judgmental in some cases. Mm-hmm. We are going to start a new feature Every week, we will announce a character ceasefire for one resident of Downton Abbey. They will be off the hook for snark for the entire episode, even against our better judgment. That's correct. It will be a challenge for us. Absolutely. To to refrain, but uh, if, if we do slip up, we will... Edit it out of the episode. Absolutely. And you'll never know. Yeah, so. you, yeah <laughs> you won't even hear about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so thank you very much, Cousin of the Week, Viscount Allen. Yes, congratulations. And so, for our inaugural character ceasefire, who will we be laying off of? Uh, I think let's lay off of William this week. All right. Yeah? Sounds good. 
he's perhaps a little too easy of a target. So this will this will mm-hmm. be a good a good chance to look at him with a fresh eye. Character sees fire as character building. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, it is. Okay, well, thanks as always to everyone who hangs out at our Facebook page, follows us on Twitter, that's at 5MaggieSmiths, and who emails us. You, yes, you, can email us at upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com, and we will pretend it's a telegram. Because we're delusional. (laughs) All right, now on to the recap. Okay. It is The Psalm, 1916. Matthew is in a war. But which war? Uh, it's 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 World War One, Kelly. What? <laughs> it's the only war in history that's so brown. Oh, okay. <laughs> Guess I'm not all smart like you. Uh, yes, uh, we <laughs> we have a very dramatic opening shot, and actually, I do have to say because I can't imagine they had that much of a budget to work with, and their World War One looks sharp. No, the it's- aerial shots are really nice. I, they they just they do a great job of suggesting the chaos. And, you know, the the detail mm-hmm. of the uniforms and the trenches. I mean, it all, it's really well done. Yes. Matthew gets to his quarters underground in, in the trenches, dug out, and has a little expository conversation with his military servant. I think uh, it's his sergeant. Yeah. Okay. Or the person the person is a sergeant. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's his Batman. I believe it would be his Batman. He has apparently, by the way, totally gotten over his reluctance to have somebody dress him because mm-hmm. his Batman is doing it and uh, they're fine. But uh, the regiment is being transferred away from the front, uh, so he's got a few days of leave. And he's going to go back home and there's a girl that he wants to see. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, they talk about how war is strange. Yeah, I like that they stop at just strange. Like, they're not like, boy, this is hell. You know, (laughs) this is not an American movie. They're like, boy, this is odd. (laughs) Funny to think of. (laughs) Yeah, and this is uh, the opening credits then kick in. I think this is the first time that they've had a cold cold open. open. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're right. So I can't remember if that continues in series two, but I guess we'll find out. Uh, we get into the Abbey, back to Downton, and Anna is training a replacement ginger. Well, they'd fallen below their statutory ginger quota. Absolutely. If you recall correctly, <laughs> Gwen is now off being a secretary at the telephone installation office. And the replacement ginger is very saucy indeed. <laughs> yeah. uh, Anna is trying to explain, because they are setting up behind them for a hospital benefit concert, that she'll go over things more clearly the following day when things are back to normal. This is clearly the ginger's first day. And she just stops and goes, I know how to run a house. So clearly she's uh, she's setting herself up to be a little bit more of a spitfire than we're <laughs> accustomed to from our Downton Gingers. Yes. Meanwhile, William is dressing Lord Grantham and not doing a very good job of well, he's it. He's in his uniform, his right. military dress. Right. And he's, he's not doing a good job of it. That's Lord Grantham's opinion, not ours. Yes. Apparently, Lord Grantham is not officially back in the army as much as he wants to be. He is he is only a Lord Lieutenant. So, does that just mean that he is Lord of... Well, Lord Lieutenant is actually a really old title, and every of the historical counties in England had a Lord Lieutenant. And in the old days, that meant that you were the commander of the army in that district. Mm -hmm. And it's something that over time just became one of the various honorary titles that the crown could give a noble that they particularly liked that year. But it would be associated with, like, land ownership. Right. It was was only a noble would be Lord Lieutenant. Um, So is it, like, a really classy militia or...? 
Well, it's it's something that had pretty much become divorced from its original military role. Okay. It used to mean specifically like that... Like Colonel Sanders? Like, <laughs> yes, like Colonel Sanders. Like, originally back in the day, the king would say, I need an army. Hey, all my lord lieutenants, gather troops. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, it just means that you get to wear a special jacket or something. Oh, you know? I like jackets. <laughs> all right, uh, good to know. Then we cut to the back alley... At Downton and O'Brien smokes alone. <laughs> so sad. That's yeah. That's the whole scene. <laughs> the dog shows up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's exciting. There's the dog again. It's a different dog. Oh my. Yeah, I learned this from an interview, so I'm not sure if it's canon. Because apparently, <laughs> according to Hugh Bonneville, the actor who portrays Lord Grantham, and I apologize if I've talked about this before, because mm. I find it for some reason <laughs> fascinating. I am fixated on this dog. Yeah. Uh, but in the first series the dog was a boy named pharaoh and in the second series it is a girl dog named isis so obviously lord grantham's got a boner for ancient egyptian stuff but secondly hugh bonneville says the two dogs had very different temperaments and this dog is like bounding down the stairs (laughs) you know as opposed to the very stately gait that Pharaoh had in the first series. And still in the opening credits. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Apparently, Julian Fellows was trying to like pawn this dog off as the same dog. And it worked for most people. But yes. Hugh Bonneville wanted to make sure we knew <laughs> that it was not supposed to be the same dog. So thank you, Hugh Bonneville. Lord Grantham asks when Bates will return. And Carson uh, reveals that he has been at a funeral. I mean, he doesn't reveal it to Lord Grantham. He reveals it to us. We're mm-hmm. like, hey, where is Mr. Bates? Yeah, we're like, what is William doing in the same room as Lord Grantham? Like, <laughs> right. I know there's a war on, but this is just beyond the pale. Yes. McGee is at the breakfast table for a change, which is weird. We've never seen her at the breakfast table before. And Lord Grantham comments on this. And she Mm -hmm. informs him that Isabel is coming to help set up for the hospital benefit. And Violet, the Dowager Countess, has threatened to look in. (laughs) And she does not want them to find her still in bed, which... I would want that every day if I was the countess of the estate. Like, wouldn't you want to be, like, up and, like, doing stuff and not just, like, lolling around in bed? I've never wanted that. Okay. <laughs> I'd always rather be lolling around I mean, look, bed. if the Dowager Countess was my mother-in-law, I would never sleep. <laughs> anyway, Lord Grantham has a letter, and by order of General Robertson, Lord Grantham is now the colonel of the North Riding Volunteers, which he stupidly thinks means he will see combat. Right. Yeah, uh, apparently it's by order of General Robertson, and he has been specifically advised to do it by General Haig, who was the commander-in-chief of the British forces. And there was actually a General Robertson who was, uh, you know, pretty high up in the ranks. So it, I, I kind of wonder, is this supposed to be the General Robertson or not? I mean, they have a historical advisor. I don't see him allowing even Baron Julian Fellows to, like, <laughs> randomly name some dude general. Well, and Julian yeah, Fellows true. is a student of the period also. Right, He's right. not just going to be like, hmm, Robertson, that's a good name. I'm not going to do any more research <laughs> about this. I feel good. I feel good. Yeah. Just have a hunch. Good point. Anyway, so then Sybil has also had a letter, and she starts crying and runs away from the table with right. McGee commenting, I'm afraid she's had more bad news. <laughs> and we're like, duh. This is Great Britain. People don't just start crying. <laughs> yes, they, they do ask her what's wrong. And she, of course, says, it's nothing. It's, and then just trails off. So, well evaded. 
Edith is out driving. Hey, way to do something useful, Edith. Yeah. Branson is there teaching her how to drive and (laughs) uh, backhandedly complimenting her terrible driving. Yeah, and, like, every comment that he makes is, like, followed by milady. Like, it's essentially like, oh, you're really bad at driving, milady. Like, must be very hard for a member of the lower class to try to teach someone of the upper class anything. Because anytime you try to make fun of them, you have to, like, smooth it over with their title. Yeah, it does seem awkward. I mean, I guess it's by design. Edith helpfully points out to Branson that he is going to be called up to war soon. And And will therefore be out of a job. To, to which I reply, fuck you, Edith. Yeah. Come like, way to, way to put salt in a soon-to-be wound. Yeah. Like, that's really <laughs> not nice. Yeah. Downstairs, Mrs. Patmore is uh, preparing food for the hospital benefit, and she is not preparing much. She says that the hospital donors won't mind if there's not much food, because it's not Belshazzar's Feast. Right. Uh, which is? Belshazzar's Feast was an event in the Bible, in the Book of Daniel, uh, and it is the one at which the famous writing on the wall appeared. Mene, mene, tekela, parson. I'm not into veggie tales, Tom. <laughs> Anyway, continuing Mrs. Patmore's long streak of making biblical references, which we find entertaining to no end. Yes. Daisy announces that she's going to make cheese straws, which sound fantastic. And William is complaining because he's not able to fight in the war. His father has forbidden him to enlist. Right. Because, if you recall, William's mother is now dead, and he has no brothers and sisters. So his father will not allow him to volunteer. And... Mrs. Patmore is telling him that she genuinely hopes that he's not called up. You know, well, she basically says, you know, you're not going to have to. They're going to call you up. Yeah. And he says, yeah, you know, I can't wait. I wish I was never born into this stupid family of service. <laughs> and she's like, ah, well, I hope you don't get called up because guess what? War isn't cool. Yeah. War is like smoking. <laughs> in, in some ways, yes. <laughs> they both kill you. That's a key way. Isabel arrives at, at Downton and thanks Lord Grantham and McGee for allowing the hospital benefit to be hosted there. The Dowager Countess then makes a dramatic entrance, Jeez, and very intentionally so. She's oh. framed in the doorway. Oh, the and shot, it's like one of, you know, it's like a dolly shot. Yeah, it's like shot from a little below mm-hmm. to make her more imposing. It's very impressive. And she has a great line, and you can charge so much more for the tickets. <laughs> yes. And she also wants to take over the flowers. Because she does not think much of Cora's taste in flowers. Uh, she says they would be a more suited to a first communion in southern Italy. Which is apparently a trope uh, at this time. You know like how a- those damn papist flowers can be. <laughs> Always genuflecting. <laughs> she also wants to know what is on the agenda for the evening, suggesting that they should have hot buttered toast with the countess at Tuppence a Slice. I would pay that depending which countess it was. Dowager Countess, I would pay a full pound. <laughs> McGee, keep your toast. <laughs> keep your butter. Just go. <laughs> In the library, Anna is instructing Ethel on how to plump pillows, and Ethel is complaining that she knows how to plump a pillow. Yes. Uh, Mrs. Hughes comes in and asks how she's getting on. I think that's when we find out that her name is Ethel. Yeah. This is the replacement ginger. And Ethel bitches about how Anna is babying her because Ethel was head housemaid at her last job. And Mrs. H cleverly notes that she was senior housemaid out of two in a much smaller house. Boom. Yeah. Point Hughes. <laughs> yes. 
anyway, uh, Mrs. Hughes is trying to explain to Anna how to keep people out of the library during the concert that evening, and she wishes that Mr. Bates had returned because he could stand guard and, I guess, scare people away with his cane. <laughs> Ethel wants to know who this Mr. Bates is. She says, everybody keeps talking about him like he's the king. And Anna says, that's very nice. Which, no, Anna, it's not. Yeah. Also, I I feel sorry for that country. <laughs> Batesylvania. <laughs> Anna further explains that Bates's mother has died and he's in London for the funeral. So now we have the whole story on why Bates isn't there. Right. Uh, the Dowager Countess comes in and asks Anna to help her do battle with a creature from the Lost World, which happens to be one of Cora's flower arrangements, yeah. proving that she reads both H.G. Wells and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So she keeps up with the pop culture of her day. That she does. It's impressive, she, uh, she probably would have been a Trekkie. <laughs> <laughs> what is a phaser? <laughs> Carson is seeing to the silver, uh, sort of somewhat frantically. Hughes tells him to ease up, uh, that the war means things can't be to the same standard as they've always been. Carson says that keeping order is the only way to show the Germans that they can't win, which is uh, odd. But people always say that in wartime. Yeah. I mean, and it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's the national party line during a war. True. I mean, you know, after 9-11 here, it was like, don't stop shopping. Right. Otherwise the terrorists win. I guess, yeah, I guess I would have preferred a push for the nation to polish more silver. Mm-hmm. Then at least we'd have shinier silver. Yeah. yeah. And I would have silver, period. I don't have any. <laughs> right. I mean, it is, it's a psychological thing because everybody yeah. wants to feel like they're doing something to help. And, you know, Carson being the control freak that he is, Mm -hmm. and, you know, he's probably heard a lot of rumors about Germans being very, like, orderly and on a tight schedule. (laughs) So he wants to make sure he's not being shown up by those krauts. That's a good point. I can say that because I'm three-quarters German. (laughs) Isabel, McGee, and Lord Grantham come into the library. They want to talk to the Dowager Countess. Uh, Isabel announces to them that not only has Matthew been to the village several times since his uh deployment to france which has been about two years it's been about two years they've not been speaking to each other for a really long time in the fallout after he and mary failed to get it on and he's got some leave coming up and he is coming to the village that day not only is he coming he's bringing his new fiance wall wall a miss lavinia swire and she is coming to meet isabel and isabel thinks that the Crawleys, the Great House Crawleys, ought to see both Matthew and Lavinia. Mm-hmm. And basically they all agree, you know, what with the war and everything, it's really time for them to stop being such giant babies about everything. Well, and of course, Lord Grantham never saw a reason this should, this should have all yeah. messed things ended up anyway. <laughs> it's like, what's the problem? I'm still here. He's still here. Well, when she tells him that he's engaged, he's like, oh, well, you can't blame them for wanting to live in the present. <laughs> and I'm like, do you think you're the only person that ever experienced a war like i know that you think that you are oh, right he does. but you know they all they get it they've yeah. all you know dated people in wars they know mm. what's up anyway so it turns out mary is coming back from london that day as well which like what is she doing in london like miss havishing him up like not <laughs> getting invited to any places like i don't understand why she's there i i yeah i don't know or is she and aunt rosamond just sit around being cranky spinsters all day i that sounds like a great time i mean she <laughs> she thinks that aunt rosamond's living it up down there that's so. true 
All right, fair enough. Yeah. Hot buttered toast with Aunt Rosamond, I guess. <laughs> anyway, but she's coming back and they're wondering if they should like tell her not to come. And Lord Grantham's like, no, we have to stop being babies. We already figured this out. <laughs> yeah. But it turns out that Mary's coming by train and Matthew and Lavinia are driving in from London in Lavinia's car. So yeah. uh, Edith is not the only lady with a vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> and the Dowager Countess gets another gem in about how she's so glad because she hates Greek drama where everything happens on stage. She wants to see yes. the fireworks that happen when Mary encounters Matthew and his new lady friend. Yes. So Lord Grantham invites Matthew, Isabel... And Matthew's new tart to the concert and dinner. So that's all decided. I just wanted to point out that I do really like Isabel in this mm-hmm. scene. I like her performance just because she's very, she understands what she's saying will be difficult for them to hear. They might be upset about it. Uh, so she's like understanding, but she's not like, she doesn't apologize for the fact that Matthew is engaged now. Well, and they all talk about, you know, they knew it was going to happen. Right. And she acknowledges that she had hoped that he and Mary would eventually get together so you know they're all actually on the same page yes but isabel's the most pragmatic adult on the show i mean we give a lot of credit to the dowager countess for being pragmatic but i mean isabel is middle class and by definition you have to be a little bit more pragmatic yeah i also like that lavinia swire is named lavinia swire because as soon as you hear that name you're like she's no mary like you haven't even seen her yet god you're naming her after the character in Shakespeare who gets raped, gets her tongue cut out, gets her hands and feet cut off, and then stick shoved into them? I mean, for God's sake. So, uh, we see good things ahead for Lavinia, is what we're saying. <laughs> Isabel, on her way out, runs into Sybil. Who's taken over moping around the house while Mary's in London, apparently. <laughs> right. She asks her what's wrong, and Sybil, who will talk to Isabel, but not her own parents. Good call, actually, I yeah, think. Yeah, I agree. Apparently, her friend Tom Bellasis has been killed in the war, and she she tells a little story about how she remembers him from a ball, and she says that she feels as if all the men she ever danced with are dead, and she feels useless and that she's not doing anything to help. Um, she's just running the tombola. Right. Which is the raffle that they will be holding, presumably at the hospital fundraiser. And Isabel suggests that she could train as an auxiliary nurse, pointing out, however, that this would involve, you know, work, something that Sybil has never done and Mm -hmm. doesn't know how to do, that she should be prepared for that. And she's talking specifically about sort of housework, scrubbing floors, making beds, boiling eggs, normal, everyday people stuff. Right. O'Brien, meanwhile, lurks up. That's her only <laughs> mode of tra- tra- travel. <laughs> it's just She just lurks from place to place. Um, Isabel notices her and sort of snaps at her what, as to find out what she wants and uh, is just there to offer Isabel a ride in to the village with McGee and the Dowager Countess. And then Isabel suggests that Sybil get some cooking lessons from Mrs. Patmore. And then we get a scene of O'Brien dressing McGee presumably to drive down to the village. Indeed. And she tells her that Isabel is trying to take advantage of Sybil and have her as a maid of all work at the hospital, which is different from an auxiliary nurse. Right. But the weird thing is that in this scene, O'Brien does not seem like she's being motivated by baseless hatred. Right. There seems to be a real almost sort of maternal concern that she's feeling sort of by proxy for McGee. Right. Like, she's still a meddling busybody, but it's 
for uh, it's on other people's behalf. Yeah, she does. I mean, she's just concerned for Sybil because, as we just heard, Sybil can't do anything. Oh, right. You know, she is as useless as a kitten after it's born. So anyway, McGee is very concerned and makes her very concerned face. <laughs> and what a face it is. Downstairs, Mrs. Patmore asks Daisy where the batter for the pancakes is. Daisy tells her Ethel, who is there, is excited that they're making pancakes and uh, wants to know if she's going to get to have any. Well, she wants them because it's crepe Suzette. Right. And she's always wanted to try those. (laughs) Yes. And she wants Mrs. Patmore to save them for her. And everybody is like, WTF. Yeah. Crazy. Even Branson. And it's (laughs) like, look... When even Branson thinks you're getting ahead of yourself, you need to step back. You need to think about what you're doing. <laughs> That's right. And like they're all, you know, everybody's there like mending something or like doing something useful, like shelling peas. Mm-hmm. And Ethel is there like filing her nails. So I guess <laughs> filing your nails is the new smoking in the back alley. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, for bad servants. <laughs> but you yeah. know, she blabs about like she wants the best things in life and she's not afraid to admit it. And you know, O'Brien's like, uh, calm down. You know, and she basically tells O'Brien that O'Brien is too old to ever want anything more in her life. Right. Which, uh, wrong person to say anything to, (laughs) Ethel. Uh, in the carriage, McGee is telling Cousin Isabel that she doesn't want Dr. Clarkson looking for help from her nursery. The Dowager Countess helpfully points out that Sybil has not been in a nursery for a very long time. (laughs) Which may come as news to McGee. Yeah. We're honestly not sure. Anyway, uh, Isabel and Violet both agree that Sybil should be allowed to be a nurse because, you know, queens and princesses across Europe are nursing and Mm -hmm. and doing their bit for the war. So they arrive at Crawley House, and uh, McGee asks if Molesley is ready for the call if it comes. And he says he's had a letter from the War Department saying that he's unsuited for service. And Isabel says that his father... Uh, the talented rose grower, (laughs) Mr. Molesley, is thrilled at the prospect of him not going to war. And uh, the Dowager Countess quotes the Bible or something. (laughs) And I was was struck at the time that Molesley was even under consideration. He He seems really old to me. Yeah, and I actually, you know, and I don't know about the characters, obviously, but I looked it up, and that actor is, in fact, older than the actor that plays Lord Grantham Mm -hmm. by two years. So, I mean... And I don't know what the deal was, but he seems awfully old to be... I mean, I would imagine conscription standards would be slightly different for the landed classes and the lower classes, but, like, they couldn't be that different. Yeah. I guess it's two years in, but still, like, they're not that desperate. Right. Like, Branson's still tooling around. (laughs) That he is. So, at the depot, Bates steps off the train and runs into what do you know, Mary. Who offers him a ride up to the house. Which, like, was he planning to limp all the way up to Downton? Well, I'm sure he was, and quite frankly, I'm surprised he accepted the ride. That's true. I'm surprised it wasn't like, no, it wouldn't be right, my lady. (laughs) You don't know the whole truth. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me while I go step on this tack so I make sure I don't enjoy the walk. Uh, back at Downton, Bates gets out of the car, and Anna is there to greet him, and she's so cute. <laughs> she is. Uh, but Mary quickly resets the status quo by informing Anna she's borrowed a case from her Aunt Rosamond because she bought some things in London. Like, for like, I don't see where Anna's not going to figure that out on her own. Like, oh, this random case just got onto our car. <laughs> in the kitchen, Sybil asks Mrs. Patmore for the cooking lessons, as she was advised to do. A whole gaggle of mystery servants gathers around for this spectacle. 
Um, and they all laugh at her because she doesn't know how to do anything. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know how to make tea or literally anything else. But Daisy, sweet girl that she is, is immediately eager to help her and says that they will. So they start off by having her fill a kettle, which she says, oh, everybody knows how to do that. And then immediately water flies everywhere and it's hilarious. Yeah. And the, the mystery servants are peeing themselves. <laughs> yes. So everyone's wet. <laughs> in Sybil's defense, somebody should fix that faucet. Yeah, That's that ridiculous. faucet was crazy, but <laughs> we get a random scene of Carson just checking the chairs for the concert, just reminding us Carson is very particular. And and there's a concert. Mm-hmm. So maybe we So consider yourselves reminded. Uh downstairs in the in the servants' dining hall, Bates grabs Anna and asks when he can talk to her. She says after the concert, because there probably is going to be a gap between the concert and when they serve dinner. And then William uh, comes in and is complaining to Daisy that his father forbids him to enlist in the army. So, you know, William continues to talk about the same thing that he talked about before. Uh, Was that mean to say that? Oh, right. Well, let's clarify that there, that is not an issue with William. That is an issue with Julian Fellows and the writing on the show. Correct. Yes. (laughs) Um, For the record. Uh, Upstairs, Mary is getting dressed. Is that Mary's room that they're in? I believe so. Why do they all hang out? I would be so annoyed if I was her. I Maybe that's just the oldest daughter's, you know, privilege. She does have the nicest room. We've we've seen the other two. Their rooms are not quite as nice yeah, as hers. true. But still, God, like, get a life, people. Well. I guess they don't have TV, though. Yeah, or, or a the life. the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mary does. She's busy having it. <laughs> In any case, they're getting dressed for the concert, which Mary says is a nightmare and wishes she'd been warned about it so that she could have come back a day or two later. That's what all those guys at the front said about the war. <laughs> hey Um, Edith sees her chance and says, but that way you'd have missed Matthew. You know, and Mary's, of course, like, Whoa. and McGee's like, oh, I was going to tell you. Or, she was not. <laughs> Um, and then Edith, before anybody can be diplomatic about it, is like, oh, and he's bringing his fiance. Which, McGee, how did you not see this coming, that Edith was going to do this? Well, and where does Edith get her information from? Lord yeah. Grantham and Lady Grantham don't like her. I just want to know who her spy is. Because <laughs> he's got to have one. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a good question, actually. Maybe, like, does she have Daisy on a retainer? Because that's a bad <laughs> spy to have. She's like, well, William wants to enlist. Like, that's the only information she could get. <laughs> Lady Sybil can't fill a kettle. Boo. Boring. No one cares. Maybe she's just a better lurker than O'Brien. Maybe. Like, nobody even knows. With her fair coloring, she probably does blend in. That's true. In any case, Mary rallies nicely, holds it together, uh, and tells everybody that she would like them all to uh, get to know Sir Richard Carlyle. It is like, oh, the one that publishes all those horrid newspapers, which Mary neither confirms nor denies. Yeah, and uh, Edith asks how old he is. And Mary says, old enough not to ask stupid questions, which is not the retort I would have gone with. I would have said, how old was Sir Anthony Stralin, is what I would have said. <laughs> yeah. That does remind me, Edith is super bitchy this episode. I guess that's just in the two years since she lost her only chance at happiness. She's just gone full. She's been quietly stewing in her own bile. And, <laughs> yeah. And her unpleasantness has been, you know, compounding and hardening like coal into a diamond. <laughs> yes. A diamond of bitch. <laughs> Mary wishes there was a chance to get Sir Richard Carlyle and her parents together and expresses regret that they no longer have the shoot, uh, the, you know, 
pheasant shoot that they would normally have every year, to which McGee says, without any apparent irony, most people have stopped shooting now that the war is on. Well, sure, most people, just not the <laughs> ones who've been enlisted. This Overall, much more shooting is going on yeah. now. In any case. And they're hunting the most dangerous game. <laughs> that... If anything, the shooting is far more exciting than it ever was. <laughs> of course, she's not in such a hurry to have Mary put on her riding boots and go on out there. Yeah. Fewer ladies present. In any case, they all head on out. And Anna asks Mary if she is all right. And Mary breaks down a little bit. There is her face in her hands. And it's just, you know, proof that Anna, much better than, you know, family. Mm-hmm. I, Mary does a lot of burying her face in her hands, and I'm curious what the cosmetic situation is at this point. That's a good point, because she just put on those gloves. Yeah, if she's wearing makeup, it's going to get on there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think makeup would have been very light at the time if it was being used at all. I think it was still considered whore paint at the mm-hmm. time. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but perhaps I will look into that, but I'm just curious. And also, I mean, regardless, they got to be made of like satin or silk. Yeah. So she's crying into them, like somebody's going to notice that they're all puckered and blotchy. Somebody like Miss Lavinia Swire, maybe. (laughs) Could be. Downstairs, Matthew is wearing a proverbial red coat Mm -hmm. of Paul Revere fame. And Lavinia, Miss Lavinia Swire, in her first appearance, is wearing the ugliest dress I've (laughs) ever seen. And I I look at Go Fug Yourself, like, every day. And then uh, the Dowager Countess and McGee are sitting together, and they see her, and the Dowager Countess says, That's Mary's replacement? (laughs) Because... Lavinia Swire is attractive, but she's nowhere near as attractive as Mary. Yeah, not even close. And I'll say I wasn't as horrified by the dress as you were. I mean, I'm not a fan, but it just struck me as like such a like flapper mm-hmm. type dress. Because she's got the the bandeau. Right. Is is very flapper esque, mm-hmm. and it's got these weird things on the side that make her look like she has tumors out of her. Well, head. and it's very like straight hanging down. Yeah, yeah. So she looks like she's got no figure. Right. Anyway, uh, Matthew finally sees Mary, and there's lots of meaningful gazing from across the room. Yes. And then Mary comes up and finally meets Lavinia, and Lavinia falls all over to sell all over herself to be like, "Oh, I've heard so much about you. Oh, I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Mary is like, "Yeah, it's fine. Just." Shut up. Yeah. And Lord Grantham pulls Lavinia away first. I think he's still trying to get Matthew and Mary together. I think you may be right. I think, I think uh, Lord Grantham's like, oh, I've got one play and I'm just going to keep playing it <laughs> as long as possible. Yeah. But Mary and Matthew basically make up. She she says, oh, you know, it's been so long. I don't know what you could possibly think of me because it's been two years since mm-hmm. they've seen each other. And he says that he's happy to see her looking so well. She she says, oh, you know, you've won, we're friends again. I'm like, you didn't really even put up much of a fight. It's true. He but they're both there. But they're both, like, really smiling and really happy to see each other. Like They're really uh, eye, eyeing each other they are. in this scene. Yeah. In a way that Matthew has not eyed Lavinia Swire <laughs> once in the ten seconds that we've seen them <laughs> together. True. Granted, he might just be averting his gaze from the horrible St. Patrick's Day massacre <laughs> that she's wearing. <laughs> Downstairs, Carson is decanting. Always decanting in the Carson cave. Yes. He's decanting angrily, in Mm -hmm. fact. Uh, Mrs. Hughes asks if he has chosen something nice for Matthew, but he is no longer a fan of Matthew uh, ever since he broke Lady Mary's heart. Mrs. Hughes awesomely says, Lady Mary broke her own heart. And I'm like, yeah, Mrs. Hughes. And meanwhile, I, like Carson... that we will never see eye to eye on this all right fair enough but mrs hughes <laughs> says that mary is a selfish jerk 
because she accepted Matthew when he had everything and she rejected him when he had nothing. I thought caution was a virtue. Ah, caution may be, but self-interest is not. Isn't anyway. Matthew being self-interested now? <laughs> well, and Carson says that he thinks Lavinia is after Matthew for his money because she is in neither Burke's peerage or Burke's landed gentry, mm-hmm. uh, which if that's the sort of thing you can have a subscription to, I'm <laughs> sure Carson has one. <laughs> yes. I'm sure he borrows it from the library on a regular basis. That's true. Signs it out. <laughs> yes. I like how Carson and Mrs. Hughes can disagree seriously on an issue that they both care about. But there's no, like, hostility between each other. They have such a great, truly platonic relationship. Yeah. And it's really nice to see, particularly on a show that's as sort of soapy Mm -hmm. as this one is. Because, you know, there's just never any question of the two of them having any kind of dalliance or feelings for each other. Right. But they are in such a functional, professional relationship. Yeah. And I just, I always enjoy their scenes together. Yeah. They they really seem to understand one another, even when they don't understand one another <laughs> indeed up at the concert the concert is underway and some ugly middle class women suddenly stand up and they walk over and give william a white feather which he doesn't know what that means and it turns out that means he is a coward and should be at the front with the rest of the men and this is something that people were doing all over england at this time showing the white feather so lord grantham stands up and calls them the cowards and kicks them out which I don't necessarily agree with their methods. Right. However, it's pretty ballsy. Yeah. To buy tickets to this benefit concert, go on in there, hang out, yeah. and then just all of a sudden interrupt the concert. Right. They're, they may be ill-mannered. Yeah. But they're not cowards. No. I think, you know, they are acting in accordance with their beliefs. They walk out and uh, Branson is just loitering in the doorway for some reason. Which he loiters all the he time. Does. I would kill for his job. Uh, it's like 90% loitering. Okay. <laughs> well, you can put that on your resume. <laughs> uh, anyway, they hand him a white feather and he says he is wearing a uniform. And this might be my favorite scene because the one woman just looks at him like she gets the joke. Yeah. And she's just like, wrong kind. And they leave and he finds it just hilarious yeah, that this has like, happened. He honestly does not care. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of nice to see because, you know, it's just a nice contrast to William's very hyper fervent wanting to be at the front. Right. You right. know, that it just, not everybody was so eager mm-hmm. to go. Yeah. I mean, well, and we see that with Mosley too. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, it's a pretty decent representation of a couple viewpoints yeah. of people who it's wartime. They're not fighting. Yeah. yeah. And I had a hard, I was wondering if they gave a, a white feather to Mr. Bates. I don't think they did. I think they would have seen his cane. Right. But still, I mean, you know, I was just, I don't know, I was just kind of hoping they would. <laughs> Divorce your wife! <laughs> Quit being a pussy! <laughs> Sadly, there is no such feather. The pussy feather? <laughs> don't think about what that looks like. <laughs> don't, Moving on. Don't draw me a picture of it. <laughs> Don't send it up yours downstairs at gmail.com. I repeat, do not. At dinner, McGee tells William, who is serving, that that was horrid what they did, and she hopes that he doesn't, you know, let it get to him. Edith naturally defends the bitches as comrades in bitchery. Um, <laughs> she, uh, she recognizes professional-level bitchery when she sees it. Yes, but uh, she says it is horrid that there are healthy men sitting at home while heroes are dying every day, which is like 
Oh my god. Like, she's saying that in the presence both of William, who genuinely wants to be <laughs> dying for his country. He's like, please, someone shoot at me. And then, you know, Matthew's there, who's at the front, and potentially doesn't want to be reminded of all the dying that's happening while he's not there. Yeah. And Lord Grantham, who also desperately wants to be shot at. Like, there's a lot of people in this room who don't need your attitude right now. Yeah, especially from somebody who is not going to get called up. No. So, shut up. Fuck off, Edith. Yeah. That feels good. (laughs) Isabel tells Sybil that a place has opened up in her nursing course on very short notice. Uh, She'll have to be ready to leave on Friday. Lord Grantham has not yet been informed that any of this is going on. Does he have any idea what (laughs) is ever going on anywhere? Like, he just doesn't seem to understand that, like, there's a world outside of his snuffbox collection sometimes. (laughs) Like, you understand that there's other sentient beings in your house, and they do. And you would think you would make more of an effort after Sybil got knocked on the head at that political rally. Like, maybe I ought to make more of an effort to be engaged in my children's lives. He's, he's been busy getting Noah's new dog. <laughs> Bates and Anna are outside in the dark. This scene was shot during the day. I think because it was. the light seems very blue and weird. Yeah, a little, uh, little day for night action. Yeah, maybe. but anyway, uh, Bates tells Anna that she pronoun that antecedent mm. ding <laughs> there and Julian Fellows. Uh, she turned up at his mother's house and that he can finally get a divorce. So we can assume that she is his mysterious wife. I guess. Uh, anyway, Anna asks him if it's a proposal. Yes, it is. It's the worst, least romantic proposal ever, especially because Mr. Bates asked Lord Grantham if he could marry Anna before he asked Anna himself. Well, she says, I would smack you in the face if I didn't want to kiss you so much. Can't we do both? I know. I'm like, go ahead and smack him. Kiss him afterwards. Yeah, make it better. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but she's very happy, which we're like, no, Anna, don't. Come live with us and we'll have a polyamorous triad. It'll be great. It would be great. She wouldn't do it. She's too, like, nice and noble to enter into such a tawdry arrangement, Tom. That's true. Well, and Edwardian. Well, yeah, and fictional. Let's not forget (laughs) fictional. Oh. Look, our delusions can only extend to telegrams. (laughs) No further. Fine. (laughs) Back at dinner... Edith says that uh, Branson says that she can drive, that she's ready for the road now, which Lord Grantham says that's not what he told him. Hmm, that Mm. sneaky Irish radical. (laughs) Lavinia tells a little of her backstory. She met Matthew in London, and that Daddy, her father, is a solicitor, like Matthew. The Dowager Countess says that, oh, you're very well placed if you're ever in trouble with the law. Lavinia, no idea how to respond to that. Possibly because she was named for a character that got her tongue cut out. I mean, also possibly because there's no response to that. That's true. You can't even, like, you just got blinded by the Dowager Countess. Yes. Also, at some point during this, Lavinia is served Crepe Suzette, which she loves. Oh, I didn't realize that was Crepe Suzette. Yeah. that, That was them, and she loves them. Well, she is much more worldly than one Ethel. Mary, who is seated next to Matthew, as always, again... Being set up, mm-hmm. 
But they uh, get to talking, and they just have such great chemistry, and they like each other so much. Well, and you said at one point when we were watching it that it's a good thing that these two are acting the shit out of this. Yes. Because it would be a much harder show to watch. It would be. Because, I mean, yeah. there's, you know, there's really good acting all around. But, I mean, if yeah. they, just, they just sell this relationship Absolutely. so much, and it's obviously important. But you just see that, like, Mary is just relaxed around him mm-hmm. in a way that she isn't with anybody else. Uh-huh. Well, and then he, I don't know, he's very chummy with her. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I have a hard time seeing any of these people being, you know, intimate. Right. In the non-Mrs. Patmore biblical sense. <laughs> but I mean, you know, they there is a chemistry there, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. They're both young and attractive with their whole lives ahead of them. <laughs> Downstairs, Ethel is reading a an issue of Photoplay magazine, which is a, a film magazine. Uh, she's reading about Mabel Normand who started with nothing and is now a big movie star. O'Brien comes in and tells Ethel that she should go up to the drawing room uh, so that McGee can thank her for such doing such a good job on her first day of work. So she gets excited and, and runs on up to, to do as O'Brien has asked, and the whole team of mystery servants that are in the room crack up laughing. Mm-hmm. Because, again, they're the only people who are allowed to find anything O'Brien does amusing. <laughs> yes. And now it is time for one of our recurring segments with our resident film buff. This is Tom Repeats History with Tom. (laughs) Thank you. So yes, inspired by Photoplay magazine, I thought I'd do a little research into the film industry of the time around about World War I. The the industry got going sort of in the, the aughts. The, the first decade of the 1900s. And at first, it was pretty much uh, based in France and Italy. Those were the big centers of the, the film industry when it first started out. Uh, although, actually, the first feature-length film was from Australia, of all places. It was called The Story of the Kelly Gang, which I then started reading about the Kelly Gang and like got well into it before I realized that it, this isn't Downton Abbey Down Under and there was no point in my doing that research. But Question. Could I join the Kelly gang <laughs> as I already have the name? <laughs> Are you a 19th century Australian outlaw? I could try. <laughs> well, then I'll get you an application form. All right. Thank you. Yes, it was unprecedentedly long. It was four reels long, which came to about an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, most movies at the time were one reel, so anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes, depending what speed they ran it at. I see. Uh, the speeds were not constant until sound came along. Then they standardized it at the 24 frames per second that it is to this day. So yeah, uh, you, of course, it was all silent at the time, as you know. But what actually was interesting to me about it was that when we think of silent movies, we think of, as in The Artist, for example... Uh, there being title cards every little bit to show you what the actors are saying. They mime something and then it comes up on screen what they just said or explain what's going on. But that actually wasn't uh, for a while. That had only just barely started by World War One. Mm-hmm. All the early movies were just flat out silent and you either got what was going on from the miming or whatever or you didn't. Or for longer movies like the story of the Kelly gang, they would hand out programs so that you could read and follow along okay. with what was actually happening. The other thing about the story of the Kelly Gang was it was the first long story film that wasn't a life of Jesus. All the first uh, story films were biblical, much like Mrs. Patmore. So about 1910, actors started getting credit. So that's when movie stars could, you know, happen. And Mabel Normand was, in fact, one of the very first. She did come from nothing. She was dirt poor and actually uh, was a Gibson girl. She modeled for Charles Gibson. Good for her. 
her. Yeah. Um, so that she's, she got a break doing that. So she, was she an American? She was American. Okay. Yes. Uh, she was from New York. She then had a tumultuous affair with Max Sennett, who some of you may recognize the name, was a very influential early director, uh, directed the Keystone Cops, and also gave uh, was the first person to direct Charlie Chaplin in the movies. And she is actually generally credited with giving Chaplin his break in Hollywood. Oh. Uh, because he did, his first movie that he did with Max Sennett did not go well, and she's generally believed to have convinced the director to give him another chance. Of course, that wound up working out. Mm-hmm. So you'll note she was from New York. That was where she got her start. That's where the film industry started out in New York. Uh, but it, I know that from the E.L. Doctorow novel Ragtime. Ah, well, there you go. But it, in fact, moved out to Hollywood, of course. And the reason it did that uh, was partly because Westerns were already a popular genre, and so being in California, they had the landscape for it. But also largely because in New York, Thomas Edison was trying to sue everybody that made movies because he had a patent on movie technology. Boy, he sure was an old crank. He was an old crank. But I would also just like to anybody, uh, when you hear about a movie studio complaining about intellectual property and all that sort of thing, do remember that their industry started with them using somebody else's patent and fleeing to California to not get sued for it. So, interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It was also at this time that the center of the movie industry uh, went to America rather than France and Italy as it had been before, because France, as we have seen, had instead become the center of people dying violent deaths, Mm -hmm. which was not conducive to the film industry. It makes a great movie, but it's hard (laughs) to make a movie of it. Right, indeed. So it it was uh, World War I is pretty much responsible for American dominance in the movie industry. Mm which has had, you know, ever since and looks to for the foreseeable future. So thanks, World War One. But Italy has always had a pretty strong film industry, right? That's true. I mean, they're, you know, but I mean, they were... But I guess World War Two then would have kind of derailed what they had going on. Yeah, it would have. Well, and World War One was fought in Italy as well. Fine. It doesn't get talked about, but it was, there was fighting well, there all through If the it war. doesn't get talked about, I don't need to know. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's pretty much all I've got. Again, I did keep getting myself sucked into like reading about Technicolor and mm-hmm. reading about you know Clara Bow who was in the twenties and all these other things. Yeah, Clara Bow's totally your dead silent film girlfriend. She is. Screw you, Mabel Normand and Lillian Gish and Mary Pickford. <laughs> I'm a Clara Bow man. So, was there any film industry in Britain at all? There was a tiny little bit of one, but all it says in Wikipedia is that at this time. British directors could not keep up with the ingenuity and innovation of other countries. No footnote, no explanation of what that means or why. That's so weird because if it started in France, I mean, the channel's not that wide. (laughs) Indeed. Huh. Yeah, it's really not at all clear why. I wonder if they just had an affinity for the live theater and they were hesitant I mean, to I think, change or I, I have a feeling that that's probably a lot of what it was. Like the music hall thing was still mm-hmm. going strong and was still sort of centered that way. And I think also that America, because it had a more widely distributed population, having movie prints that you could ship from place to place, you know, it's a lot easier to ship a movie around than it is to ship a whole troop of actors. That's true. And so that might have been. In, but I, you know, that's just me imagining history, mm-hmm. which is Leo's job. It's true. Yeah. So cut it out. I will. All right. 
Back at the ranch, uh, in the drawing room, actually, Edith is trying to become Lavinia's new BFF when Ethel busts into the drawing room, causing no end of awkwardness. And <laughs> yeah. she just bursts in and talks a blue streak about how what an honor and a privilege it is to work in that house. And, like, everybody's like, yeah, we know. And William literally, like, freezes, like, mid-bending down and stares at her. Uh-huh. Like, he can't even straighten up. He's so shocked. And uh, Carson comes and smooths everything over and sends her back downstairs. He finds out that Miss O'Brien told mm-hmm. her that McGee wanted to talk to her. Uh, you know, she leaves and everyone laughs, uh, including Lavinia, who's like, I may be middle class, but I know when it's time to laugh at someone I'm impressing. <laughs> Me and Daddy laugh at our servants all the time. <laughs> you know, and it's weird because I know Mary and I don't think Edith ever calls anybody by anything. Well, she calls, I guess, no, they do Mama and Papa. Yeah. That's right. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. why it's so jarring to me that she says Daddy, <laughs> yeah. which I just always find it creepy when grown women call their dads Daddy. Yeah. Like, mm, gross. Mm. Like, get some therapy, Veruca. <laughs> so, uh, Lavinia's headed out. She's outside waiting with Carson. Matthew is lagged behind a little bit with Mary. He sure doesn't seem to have any compunction whatsoever about... Lavinia going off and waiting with one of the weird male father <laughs> figures in Mary's life while he stays behind and talks to Mary. It's, uh, look, he said, when he said at the beginning that there's a girl I want to see, it wasn't Lavinia. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But in any case, he's telling Mary that Lavinia will have plenty of time. He recognizes that Lavinia has not, you know, isn't really up to the standard of the Granthams, but he says that she'll be a lawyer's life longer than she'll be a countess if he doesn't die first. What well, really should be tacked on at the end of every sentence? <laughs> you know, it's like that, you know, in bed game. <laughs> if yes. I don't die first. Right. And also, he's very optimistic about Lord Grantham's lifespan, mm-hmm. which, I mean, like, he could, but, like... Well, look, the women in his family seem to think that the news of Mr. Pamuk's unseemly demise would kill him. Right. So... And I'm sure, like, does he not eat red meat and drink wine every day of his mm. life? But, hey, you know, whatever. I, did they, I don't think they knew that that was so bad then yet, did they? Well, I don't think they Had knew. graham crackers been invented? <laughs> That's when I generally think that, like, healthy eating started happening. It's true! No, I, I understand. And, and cornflakes. Yes. Kellogg's. Kellogg's in no way sponsors or agrees with any of the opinions <laughs> expressed on this show. Right. Unless you want to, then we can talk. <laughs> but the point is that Matthew is so pleased that he and Mary are friends again. Yes. Just so delighted he's going to leave Lavinia with Carson. Carson, who clearly does not like Lavinia. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, nobody upstairs would have any reason to know that Carson has an opinion about that's, anything. That's true. Because as Lord Grantham has said, who cares what Carson thinks? <laughs> right. Back down in the servants' hall, Ethel expresses her distaste for O'Brien's prank and does not understand why everyone else thought it was so funny (laughs) when it is so obvious. Yeah. Come on, Ethel. Yeah. And, you know, O'Brien's kind of being very snippy about it. And, you know, because Ethel's whole thing is like, you weren't even upstairs to enjoy it when I got humiliated. And O'Brien said, oh, we enjoyed it well enough down here. Yeah. And Carson says, that's enough, Miss O'Brien. Lady Grantham told me to let this go, but... Don't tempt me to change my mind, which is great. Well, and it's important because, I mean, Carson would never have just let this slide. I mean, he's a pretty cool guy. Once again, McGee, why? What is this? I just want to see a short, 
I want to see a bunch of web shorts. Like, where are the web shorts for this series? Every damn show on NBC has web shorts, and I don't care about that. I want to understand what is the deal with O'Brien and McChee. Anyway. Yeah. I'd also like to point out that O'Brien much better without Thomas's dead weight ruining all her schemes. It's true. Like, that scheme went off without a hitch. Mm-hmm. And she has the approbation and approval of everyone below stairs. That's right. Except for tacitly Carson. But, you know, that's his job. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Carson is asking Daisy why he saw Lady Sybil in the kitchen. And Daisy informs him that they're teaching her basic cooking. And then it's a, it's a surprise. So please don't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't like secrets. So he is uh, disapproving of this whole plan. Ethel... Clearly not understanding that she should just probably shut up for a little while. Oh, right. Announces that it's great that uh, Sybil's learning how to cook and scrub because things are changing for the upper classes and the low. And she means to make the most of it, prompting me to dub her Ginger Lady Thomas. <laughs> and uh, she asks Mrs. Patmore if all the pancakes got eaten. Mrs. Patmore says they did before feeding them to the dog Isis, which is hilarious. Yes. Isis, much like Ethel and Lavinia... Loves crepe Suzette. Mm-hmm. Dr. Clarkson is uh, discussing the hospital with Isabel. Apparently, they're going, they've been assigned a hundred more wounded soldiers to be at the hospital, and therefore they're going to have to convert their last remaining day room for convalescent soldiers into a sick room. So that is apparently as soon as the men are able to stand, they're going to have to go off to another hospital to make room for more wounded. Mosley is serving them uh, tea, presumably, this being England. And Dr. Clarkson asks if Mosley should be doing that, given his condition. Isabel does not know what he's talking about. Uh, Apparently, Cousin Violet had told him that Mosley had a lung condition and had asked him to write to the war office to spare him the embarrassment of the physical examination. And she's done the same for William, who has an embarrassing skin condition that he hates to talk about. Right. And, okay... I have two questions. Yes. Number one, how heavy is that tray? Oh, right. Number two, how do you as a military doctor allow old Lady Grantham, as he hilariously calls her, (laughs) just be like, oh, uh, you know what? I got these guys. They can't. They're just, you know. And like, I'll grant you maybe moles. I mean, no, I won't. You see Mosley all the time, because you hang out with Isabel mm-hmm. all the time, and you've seen William's skin. Yeah. Like, you see his face, his hands, like, he doesn't have a skin condition. Anyway, regardless, yeah. for narrative economy, that's like, what, like 17 dings at this point <laughs> for Julian Fellows? Yes. Uh, Isabel is livid right. that this has happened, mm-hmm. and makes no bones about it, as is her custom. Uh, back down in the kitchens, uh, Mrs. Patmore is making fun of Sybil's cooking, tacking on the prerequisite milady. <laughs> she just comes over, she's like, what in Wonderland is that supposed to be, milady? <laughs> yes. uh, Sybil, fortunately, uh, after her many uh, days hanging out with the radical Irish chauffeur, is nonplussed by this, but is very concerned about why the food she is cooking has gone all lumpy. Daisy helpfully comes over and tells her to just chuck it all out and they'll just start over again. Right, as opposed to merely insulting her, as Mrs. Patmore did. You know yelling at me doesn't make me learn to cook, right? <laughs> Tell that to my home ec teacher. <laughs> I'd rather not. Yeah, she was an alcoholic. <laughs> Goodness. Uh, I'm kidding. I didn't actually take home ec because the teacher was, in fact, an alcoholic. <laughs> 
dark tales of Roger Bacon. <laughs> Down in the servants' kitchen, Bates and Anna are sitting. They're planning their life together. Uh, they're talking about renting out his dead mother's house to make some money to save up and possibly having a family, buying a small hotel that they can run together and work together and have their kids with them. I'm just getting all weepy and I hate Mr. Bates. <laughs> I know. They uh, discuss that perhaps he's going to go down to London to get the house ready to rent out. Anna suggests that she could go with him and they could do it together, by which she means do it together. <laughs> <laughs> um... But yes, she's so happy. It's the happiest she's ever been. Then Ethel stomps in, sits down at the table, and opens a book. In loudly? A very... How do you loudly open a book? I know. But she's figured out a way to do it. It's probably that Ruskin everybody keeps reading. <laughs> Bates is visibly pissed off at her, so I am confirmed. She is the ginger lady, Thomas. <laughs> she is. The one person who could make Bates upset. <laughs> It's only a matter of time before he slams her against the wall and threatens to break her teeth. Matthew's leaving Crawley House. He sees two random servants flirting. He's like, oh, I'll miss the flirting servants of Downton, <laughs> is apparently his thought process. Well, it beats the Doughboys any day. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Especially what with the uh, grab ass that surely goes on in those trenches. Yeah. And so he's down at the depot uh, to get on his train, but Mary is there waiting for him. Yeah, already. Before yeah. him. Yeah. He's shocked that she, I mean, because it's, he said it's the six o'clock train, mm -hmm. so she must have had to get up at like four. Yeah. She says the servants were surprised to see her up that early. And I'm just like, did you like, did you wake Anna up at that point? Or like, I wonder how that works. Yeah. Well, because it's, you know, it's hard to get dressed without a servant. I mean, she's dressed to the nines. Right. So. In any case, she got there one way or another. She gives him uh, a tiny stuffed dog, it appears to be. Uh, she says it's been her lucky charm. She wants him to take it with him because he needs the luck more than she does. And they just have a super moving scene. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's gotten us very emotional. It's hard to even talk about. She just basically is like, come back. Yeah. She's like, come back. And so he's like, will you, like, take care of my mom? And will you take care of Lavinia? And then, like, she kisses him and, like, sob like yeah. it's so hard to watch and now talk about yeah well and I, I will say this is i mean even really a better example of what a good job they both do as acting wise well, because, because they both they keep it together um for the most part but it's not like it's so it's such a almost cliche kind of scene mm -hmm. but they keep it completely like grounded and real the, the well whole and it's through. just you can see there's so much emotion behind the eyes and you know they're both like fighting back these tears mm -hmm. and just being you know trying to be as stoic as possible right and it's just incredibly moving yeah it's just really well done yeah, yeah. one of again one of the best scenes in in this episode absolutely Downstairs, Ethel is talking to a random woman who is saying something about working for Lady Flincher. Well, what she says, the introduction with her is just her voice, and she says, Lady Mary was definitely part of the story. And just it, with that cut coming from that scene and that voice, like it just, for a moment, I was like, wait a minute, is this the narrator of this show? <laughs> <laughs> is this all Edwardian How I Met Your Mother? <laughs> Oh my god, shoot me in the head, please. <laughs> but yes, yeah. uh, a random woman who's saying something about... Uh, Lady Flincher. Lady Flincher. Uh, which, who was 
one of the conduits of the of the tales of Lady Mary that were circulating in London. Yeah, so danger alert there. Anyway, Anna bursts in and asks Ethel if she's offered their guests some tea, and Ethel is just like, what? No, I'll go ask Daisy. And then Anna follows her and tells her the first rule of service is that they don't discuss the business of the house with strangers. And then Ethel says that the woman's not a stranger, she's Mr. Bates' wife. And has anyone told him she's here? And it's like, no, not if you're the only one who knows. Yeah. And you decided that instead of telling him, you would sit there and like listen to gossip. She wants the best, Kelly. The best gossip? I think you can probably do better than this lady. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Anyway, Anna is shocked. A little bit uh, perturbed as, by this as, turn of events. As well she should be. Yes, indeed. She uh, introduces herself. Mrs. Bates is, recognizes that she is the one that visited... Her mother-in-law. Her late lamented mother-in-law. Her late lamented mother-in-law, yes. Bates arrives, and he's he's not thrilled. Yeah, not terribly happy to see her. Uh, Mrs. Hughes comes in and offers them her sitting room. Uh, she says she's put the tea up in there, and they can visit in there. And Vera is uh, uh, pure evil. No, she says out loud in front of all of them. She's like, oh, you're all so kind. I can see why my Batesies got so spoiled, which minus a thousand points for calling you Batesy. <laughs> yes. Like, even ironically. That's yeah. just not okay. Yeah. And then number two, why would you say that in front of people? Like, why would you reveal yourself as pure evil on your first (laughs) encounter with these people? Like, she doesn't actually end every sentence with a sinister laugh, but she might as well It's implied. Yeah. Like, she clearly wants you to get that impression. Yeah. Anyway, we cut upstairs to McGee's parlor, where she is... She's constantly embroidering things. And I'm like, I feel like there's just a closet somewhere (laughs) full of these embroidery projects that she's completed, but they have no use for (laughs) Like they're like it's just the same like picture of a cat that only has one ear over and over again. Uh, so Carson comes in and, and and tells her that he has some disturbing news. Or yes, he just it's he totally overblows it. <laughs> right, and she's like, okay. <laughs> so he tells her that Sybil has been down in the kitchens, which I mean, she is pretty shocked by. Well, I mean, yes, but also, that is the least shocking secret that has ever been revealed at Downton Abbey. I think that's true. <laughs> like, your daughter is making a cake. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> that's like a parody of Downton Abbey. <laughs> but yes, they cut in the scene downstairs to the cake being made, it's coming out of the oven as they observe through the window. There's always a lot of people observing through that window and yeah. the people in the kitchen like never bother to look there. Yeah. And maybe I'm just like self-absorbed, but I would constantly be checking to see if somebody <laughs> was looking at me. Well, like the, you are aware that it's like mm-hmm. two-way glass. Yeah, it's like, not, they can, yeah. No spy shit going on. <laughs> right. But in any case, it's very cute. Her inaugural cake making. She's very nervous about it. And- Branson wanders in in a pair of ridiculously puffy trousers. <laughs> I'm beginning to understand why those trousers have their own Twitter account. It's true. Oh my god. <laughs> you know, Carson is very uh, harumphing about all this. Yeah, he doesn't like surprises even at the best of times. Yes. But McGee is teary eyed and is just fine with Sybil. Like, not just being a useless puppet of the aristocracy. Which is real growth on the part of McGee. It's true. And tells Carson to not spoil the surprise, which 
come on, Carson. Yeah. I like you, but... We're usually on your side, but... Not on, this dude. time. Yeah. Not cool, dude. <laughs> Not cool. In Mrs. Hughes' sitting room, Bates is standing up. Vera wants him to sit down. He says he won't. He doesn't want anything to do with her anymore. She is calmly and evilly drinking her tea, <laughs> casually asking if Lord Grantham has his own blend, which I would think so. He's a lord. <laughs> anyway, Vera explains that she got a job with Lady Flincher by using Bates' name, which... Did they not check her references? Like... <laughs> Like, if Lady Flincher is just hiring people willy-nilly like this, uh, I hope something bad happens to her. I mean, nothing good has been revealed to us about Lady Flincher at any time. Anyway, because the presumably the lady's maid of Lady Flincher's, who had previously befriended O'Brien, wanted to know from Mrs. Bates if the story of Lady Mary and Mr. Pamuk was true, assuming that she would know because she was married to... Mr. Bates. Yeah. Uh, Vera said for her to tell her what she knew and she would tell her if it was true. Which, hey, ladies made, clearly you went to the O'Brien and Thomas school of scheming because <laughs> yeah. that's the dumbest idea ever. Yeah. That's the oldest trick in the book. But anyway, so she found out a cracking story all about that <laughs> and that Anna figures into it, which we're kind of curious how she knew that. Right, because the only people that knew Anna was involved were McGee and Mary and Daisy. Mm-hmm. That's it. O'Brien didn't know because Thomas didn't know. He just knew that Mary had been, that Pamuk had been in yeah. Mary's room. Well, but I mean, I guess potentially Daisy could have revealed that to Edith. And I think the story that makes it to the Flinchers came from the Turkish ambassador. Okay. All right. So it's possible... But then what does the Turkish ambassador care if Anna was involved or would even know, you know, he would know a maid might have yeah, been involved. Yeah, that's true. Well, anyway. Yeah. However ding, it happened. 475. <laughs> Basically, Bates calls her a bitch and grabs her arm as if to strike her. And I'm like, oh, maybe I don't hate you after all. <laughs> but she tells him that if he hits her, she actually encourages him to hit her and she will run on down to the village to have it photographed. Right. I don't understand how that particularly helps her. Because, like, aren't men allowed to beat their wives at this point? I mean... Uh, I'm not clear what the domestic abuse laws are at this point. Right. But, yeah. You know, I don't know. Maybe she's going to show it to Anna. But, like, nobody would ever hit Anna. Come on. Yeah. Anna would be like, yeah, good. I'll hit you, too. Yeah. She would duck first. Yeah, anyway. True. Vera blackmails him into quitting his job and going back to London with her forever. Yeah. And she knows she can do this because she, as she says early in the scene, well, you went to prison for me one time. And I'm like, see, Bates, see what your self-sacrificing gets you. It just tells people that they can walk all over you. And I had this conversation with a friend of mine, uh, cousin Sarah, if you're out there. We were just talking about how frustrating it is, you know, that Bates is so self-effacing and never standing up for himself. But it's also that I just, I don't understand what he gets out of it. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't see this sort of cycle of abuse perpetuating itself with him because he said, you know, in the past he was drinking and he was very angry and you see kind of a flash of that anger in this scene. It's just so unclear why he keeps acquiescing to her demands then. Yeah. Because I mean, obviously he's been doing it for years and his mother had said it was because he felt bad 
Right. That, like, somehow well, he was responsible for her. I mean, in this case, he's doing it because he, she's threatening the Granthams as a whole mm-hmm. and Anna, and he's willing to sacrifice his own happiness for theirs, which, uh, you know, not, like, you know, not great, but it makes some sense. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's it's a larger character well, question and Yeah, and I've got I've got another rant lined up in a couple scenes here, so we'll spectacular we'll table this for now. Oh, but Mrs. Hughes has been eavesdropping yes. the whole time. That's right. Uh she's outside this little grate that has like a case in front of it that she clearly has like placed there so nobody knows. Mm-hmm. And uh so So she heard the whole thing. So she heard the whole thing. And I think uh if Carson is Batman, then Mrs. Hughes is Barbara Gordon, aka Batgirl, aka Oracle. That's oh, my take right. on it. Probably there's some people out there who think she's Batwoman, because that's more feminist. But, like, whatever. I like Batgirl. It's not a very feminist time. <laughs> so we then cut to Lord Grantham yelling. Uh, at surprise! Surprise! <laughs> yes. At Bates for quitting abruptly. Which, uh, he's, you know, right to be upset. Yeah, I would be upset. He says, everyone was against you coming. Everyone, from her ladyship to Carson. Because in Lord Grantham's world, that encompasses everyone. Mm-hmm. There's no below Carson, nobody. Lest he forget, he himself was against Bates and fired him. That that is true. Just pointing. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. But yes, he uh, just has a big fit about it. He says he can't remember being more disappointed by any man. Does he have memento disease? <laughs> What about Matthew? I would think Matthew not marrying Mary would be a much bigger disappointment than Bates. Uh, Lord Grantham never really cared that much about that. <laughs> He's still deluding himself into thinking it. It'll like, happen. It'll he, happen. Well, I mean, mainly as long as he continues with the cottage restoration plan, like he's more concerned about the cottages than about Mary. Yeah, he really doesn't seem to like her very much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What does he say? You're my darling daughter and I love you. Hard as it is for an Englishman to say it. <laughs> right. Back outside in the uh, courtyard of doomed love, <laughs> Anna is upset and crying and says to Mr. Bates, you're telling me my whole life is over and you're not even going to tell me why, which is kind of a dick move. Yeah. And this is this is my, my promised rant here. Why won't he tell her? I mean, even in his twisted martyr mind where he has to do this and he mm-hmm. has to sacrifice himself for the family and for Anne and all that sort of thing. There's no reason that he can't tell her that that's what he's doing. Well, and I would like to point out, Anna helped concoct a plan to carry the dead Mr. Kamuk <laughs> across the entire house. Like, yeah. she's resourceful yeah. in a pinch. Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, she tells him that she'd live in sin with him. She doesn't care about being married. She just wants to be with him. But he is a moron and leaves her to cry alone outside like somebody needs to play mr bates the greatest love of all by whitney houston may her soul rest in peace (laughs) learning to love yourself mr bates it is the greatest love of all and maybe it would prevent you from hurting our precious beloved anna yeah it's really she's our greatest she's doing some seriously emmy worthy crying (laughs) and she doesn't get to wear nice enough clothes or have a pretty enough nose to get nominated for an emmy but joanne froggett does a really nice job with this character and nothing against the actor playing mr bates but she's got like nothing to play off of Mm -hmm. because he has no emotions yeah as written 
He's just constantly having that sort of like half frown, half smile. Yeah. He's basically uh, Harvey Two-Face Dent. <laughs> We're going to keep up with the Batman metaphors. And I hope we are. Well, uh, I think we have to at this point. <laughs> Comedy comes in threes. Downstairs, William is sitting sad and alone in the kitchen. Uh, Daisy comes in. She was looking for the photo play magazine, in fact. But she sees him and to make conversation says, Have you noticed I'm not scared of electricity anymore? Well... Not much. <laughs> Daisy, I feel exactly the same way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, she says that because he was sitting sad and alone in the dark. Mm-hmm. So she had turned the light on. So they got electricity downstairs then. Yes. Finally. Yeah. So, yeah. And she says that when it had just been upstairs, she had been scared of it. But now that it's downstairs, she's mm-hmm. gotten used to it. Well, she's around it much more then. Right. Because she's right. only upstairs probably for an hour or two a day. Yeah. Yeah. Just in the morning. William's sad still about the fact that he wants to enlist and, and he's not allowed to. Well, that his father's telling him not to, but his father, you know, as he says, doesn't own him. He's not the law. Yeah, he technically can't prevent him from doing it. Right, right. Um, and Daisy tells him not to be so hard on himself, and she wishes she could cheer him up, and she would do anything to cheer him up. And he says, like, what? And she is so cute and adorable. <laughs> Looks around, she says, oh, like this, and she kisses him. And he, like, looks in the other room. Like, he right. doesn't really react. Yeah, he's, he's just like, what? <laughs> and he's like, oh, you just feel sorry for me. And she says, William, I've only kissed you. <laughs> you wanted me to for how long? Yeah. And it's so and great. And now she has. Ah, it's so great. And then William is like, does this mean you're my girl? And I'm like, William, she just wanted... Eh, 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 eh. Character ceasefire. Can't do it. And I feel really sorry for Daisy at this point because all she wanted to do was kiss a boy. Like, that's really what it was. Well, she, she got just all... wanted to cheer him up. Yeah, I mean, she wanted to cheer him up, absolutely. But also, I mean, to me, like, that was just a big... Like, she probably never has. Mm, that's true. You know? And Mrs. She... Patmore doesn't count. <laughs> I'm kidding. She would never kiss Mrs. Patmore. No, she wouldn't. You know, she, she gets all worked up reading her photo play magazine mm-hmm. and, and she just wanted to kiss a boy. That's all. But I uh, know now William thinks that she's his girl. Yeah, she reverts to deer in headlights mode at <laughs> she, that point. She does. But she hasn't done a lot this episode. She seemed very capable. You yeah. Know, she's much more sure of herself in the kitchens and yeah. standing up to Mrs. Patmore a little bit. Uh, so, you know, there's been some real character development here. Yeah. Well done. We're going to take away a few of your dings, Baron Julian. <laughs> That's right. Back in the trenches. Matthew's regiment is called up again, and everyone is dying. That's all you really need to know. <laughs> yes. Matthew runs out in, into battle. He takes Mary's uh, stuffed animal, leaves behind the picture of Lavinia. That's a good call. Yeah. We can wash the blood out of the Lucky Charm. If the blood gets on the, the photo, I think it's ruined. <laughs> I, I actually, I guess that's true. Outside, Matthew runs into, of all people... Thomas. <gasps> Thomas, I thought we got rid of him. Sadly, no. And he says, oh, Thomas, you'll never guess where I've just been. Yes, he would, because he's not stupid. You have exactly one thing in common, <laughs> and like he's not going to jump there right away. Yeah. Anyway. Yes. Uh, and that brings us to our other recurring segment, where our resident military maven, Kelly Anakin, will tell us a little bit about the fashions of the time in a segment we call fashion backwards. Thank you, Tom. So as you may have guessed, today we're going to talk a little bit about British military uniforms in World War I. 
Uh, we see quite a few of them in this first episode. Uh, we're getting most of our information from Edwardian Promenade, thanks to Evangeline Holland over there, and also Wikipedia, which was of great help to Ms. Holland in her research as well. <laughs> so according to Wikipedia... The British Army quickly recognized the value of camouflage in the mid-19th century, which isn't that quickly uh, to me, <laughs> considering how long the British had been fighting wars in the broader scope of history. Yeah, like uh, quickly would have been, say, 1777. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, well, and I mean, I guess, you know, in, in earlier years, it was important to have colorful uniforms so you knew you weren't killing people on your side if it was much closer hand-to-hand mm. kind of stuff. But still, yeah, it yeah. seems like common sense. You yeah. know, soldiers should be neither seen nor heard, <laughs> yeah. frankly. Uh, but anyway, following reforms after the Second Boer War, which is the war Lord Grantham and Mr. Bates are both veterans of, mm-hmm. a darker khaki surge was adopted. And this is what you see Matthew Thomas and the other soldiers wearing. And also Lord Grantham, I think, you know, he, he right. would have kept his his mess updated mm-hmm. in just such an occasion as a war breaking out. <laughs> yeah. They were actually well ahead of the French on this because the French military were still wearing bright blue coats and red pants until several months into World War One, presumably until someone realized that those colors made great targets for the Germans. <laughs> yeah. The Germans, who wore a gray uniform with red piping and accents, but those accents were removed as the war went on, and the brown leather boots and accessories that they used were dyed black instead, uh, again, presumably to blend in a little bit more with their environment. And the British soldier went to war in August 1914 wearing the 1902 pattern service dress tunic and trousers. This is all ripped straight from Wikipedia because I don't understand the finer distinctions yeah. of the military <laughs> uniform. Yeah. Uh, this was a thick woolen tunic, dyed khaki. There were two breast pockets for personal items and a soldier's AB64 paybook. So I could keep track of how the go- uh, government wasn't probably paying their wages. <laughs> yes. Personal items, such as perhaps a small stuffed dog. Or a picture of your supposed fiancé. Yeah. Actually, those would have been kept in the two smaller pockets for other items. Ah. And there was an internal pocket sewn under the right flap of the lower tunic where the first field dressing was kept. So that was, you know, Mm. how to deal with getting a limb blown off, presumably. Uh, Rifle pouches were sewn above the breast pockets to prevent wear from the webbing equipment and rifle. Shoulder straps were sewn on and fastened with brass buttons with enough space for a brass regimental shoulder title. Rank insignia was sewn onto the upper tunic sleeves, while trade badges and long service and good conduct stripes were placed on the lower sleeves. And you can see that on Lord Grantham. Matthew, I don't think, is particularly decorated at this point. Right. Uh, but my memory may just be failing. Yeah, yeah. A stiffened peak cap was worn made of the same material with a leather strap brass fitting and secured with two small brass buttons. Putties were worn around the ankles. Those were strips of fabric that bound the boots to the pants to make them watertight. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's a, a word I had seen in my various reading of British books, mm-hmm. but I never know what that meant. Yeah, I, I you know I had never seen or heard of them, so that's an interesting thing. Yeah. And then they wore ammunition boots with hobnail soles on the feet. And a hobnail sole essentially is boots with nails driven into them to make them, or to provide more traction. Yeah, like uh, so like cleats. Yes, so fans of the song Happiness is a Warm Gun, you now know <laughs> what a hobnail boot is. And who isn't a uh, fan? Mick Jagger. <laughs> 
Anyway, uh, the boots were normally brown. They were made of reverse hide and had steel toe caps and a steel plate on the heel. So very handy for kicking a Jerry when he's down. <laughs> the uh, 1908 pattern webbing equipment. So this would have been their sort of equipment ration. Yeah. Starting in 1908 and not updated, particularly before the outbreak of this war. It comprised a wide belt, left and right ammunition pouches, which held 75 rounds each, left and right braces, a bayonet frog, also known as a jargon, an attachment for the entrenching tool handle and entrenching tool head in web cover, presumably, you know, a spade, water bottle carrier, small haversack, and large pack. A mess tin was worn attached to one of the packs and was contained inside a cloth buff-colored khaki cover. Inside the haversack were personal items, knife, and when on active service, unused portions of the undoubtedly delicious daily ration. (laughs) The large pack could sometimes be used to house some of these items, but normally they carried the great coat or a blanket that they had in there for extra warmth. Mm. And the full set of this 1908 webbing could weigh over 70 pounds. So all of these soldiers are basically carrying Daisy around (laughs) on a day-to-day basis. Wow. Mm -hmm. 32 kilograms for our friends who are forward-thinking and on the metric system. (laughs) Yes. Now, the other primary innovation of this war was the Brody helmet. The Brody helmet is the helmet you see Matthew and the others wearing. It's made of steel with that large, wide brim. Mm -hmm. And it replaced the traditional pith helmet, which is the hat we associate with the Indian and colonial British wars, uh, as well as people who go on safari. The Brody helmet was better at protecting the head from bullet wounds, but the Germans actually had a far superior helmet that conformed better to the shape of the head and that was called the Stahlhelm or the Stahlhelm. And that headgear in Germany replaced the traditional leather Pickelhalbe. And the Germans eventually started painting their Stahlhelms in camouflage, very similar to what you see the military using today, you know, different patches of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that would look right. like dirt from far away. Yeah. Very handy in a dirt based war <laughs> such as this. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of dirt, we got a little bit from a special feature on our Downton Abbey Series 2 DVD. They have a fashion and uniforms uh, feature, the majority of which is spent on the ladies' fashions, <laughs> right. which I can only think accurately refre- reflects people's interest. Yeah, yeah. But they had some conversations with uh, Rosalind Ebbett and Susanna Buxton, who are costume designers on the show. Mm-hmm. Rosalind Ebbett seems to be primarily responsible for the men's side of things. I could be wrong, but she, yeah, she was yeah. the one addressing the military stuff. And then Alistair Bruce is their historical advisor. And then Anne Nosh Oldham is the makeup and hair artist. And her name always makes me think of, if you've seen the movie A Midwinter's Tale, their uh, costume designer is named Fadge. <laughs> so for some reason, I find that very similar. It turns out, according to Rosalind Ebbett, on set, they had three sets of military uniforms for each actor hmm. in various states of distress. So you had, you know, the clean one that mm. people are wearing when they're not in active service, you know, the, the soiled one for when things aren't too real, yeah. and then the really, really dirty ones. Yeah. Uh, like the scene where, where Matthew, that we just saw, where Matthew is back in the trenches and he's talking to his sergeant. Like, the sergeant just has mud all over his face. <laughs> right. They don't, they don't address it. Yeah. But he's just, he's very, you know, perfect British soldier, but he's completely covered in mud. Well, you know, their dugout does not appear to be equipped with a shower. True. Fun fact, though, Anne Nosh Oldham and her makeup crew went out, you know, to the set where the trench was, and they matched their makeup to the dirt from the trench mm. so that, you know, the the effect would be authentic since they didn't actually 
rub dirt on everybody's faces. <laughs> but it does look like they did. It so, does. Yeah. You know, well done, Nosh. <laughs> Agreed. The just final little bit of interesting information is that Alistair Bruce, the historical advisor, he chooses all the medals, and he's actually a member of the College of Arms yeah. in Great Britain, so he designs coats of arms for people. So he's designed you know, some of the insignia, most of which you will never see unless you have a really big screen TV. <laughs> right. But I just thought it was neat that they, no, that that they that took too. such I... care, and, and he was so thrilled. And he told this great story about how he arrived on set one day and they'd been shooting, but Lord Grantham's decoration was just completely out of whack. Uh, right. So he, like, shut everything down. And he <laughs> yeah. was like, no! <laughs> so uh, keep up the good work, Alistair Bruce. You are a delight. Yes. And that's the end of uh, Fashion Backwards for today. Well, okay. Thank you, Kelly. You are welcome. Back at Downton, Bates and Vera are riding off to a lifetime of misery. Anna is watching from a window and crying, as as well she should be. Mm-hmm. In uh, Sybil's room, the Dowager Countess is asking where Anna is, because Mrs. Hughes is in there filling in for her. Yes. Uh, they're helping Sybil pack to go off to train for her nursing duties. Yes, and well done, Mrs. Hughes. Mm-hmm. This is not, you know, technically an excuse for Anna to miss work, but... Mm-hmm. This is nice for her. And she just says, you know, she's, she is feeling under the weather, so she's taking over. Yeah. Because uh, Mrs. Hughes is the bomb. And Edith offers to drive Sybil to her training, and the Dowager Countess tells Edith that Sybil is taking enough chance with her life as it is. Because <laughs> I wouldn't put it past Edith to just crash the car. <laughs> right. You know, I'd be mean, like, if I can't have Sir Anthony Strauss, <laughs> nobody can! <laughs> I don't even like him. <laughs> The Dowager Countess does not understand the driving mania. Mm-hmm. And Edith actually says the only not horribly bitchy thing she says the entire <laughs> show is that, yeah. you know, if Sybil can be a nurse, why can't she be a chauffeur? They're not going to let an able-bodied man drive them around much longer. Yeah. And, you know, God forbid they not use the car and save oil for the war effort. But that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Uh, anyway, you know, the Dowager Countess just throws her hands up and chalks it all off to, you know kids today right and you know she tells sybil you know good luck and to remember her great aunt roberta and mary asks who's great aunt roberta (laughs) just like us and it turns out great aunt roberta loaded the guns at lucknow yes which was and is a town in india and was the site of a siege during one of the uh many and varied indian rebellions over the course of the years yes Uh, this one was i believe in 1857 i looked it up the other day And it was just a long siege that they held out very heroically for a long time and was a big, big boost to the uh, empire back home that they they held out like that. Well, well done, great Aunt Roberta. I thought that was a great, like, feminist victory until you told me that story. (laughs) It was a victory for feminism, not so much for uh, multiculturalism. All right. Anyway, uh, McGee comes in or has she been there the whole time? I think so. Anyway, she's like, oh, my girls are leaving the nest. And I'm like, one of them is. And the other two have failed miserably. Like, what are you getting so sentimental about? (laughs) They should have been out of here long ago, crazy town. Yeah. Anyway, so she leaves and Edith says, poor mama. She always feels these things so dreadfully. And I'm like, have you seen her face? I'm not sure that she does. But Mary... (laughs) In true Mary fashion says, it's her American blood. And it just like, her whole attitude is like, she's not really my mother. I hatched. Yeah. She just 
just and I mean you know it's the same as the letter that we were discussing earlier I mean she really does just like constantly mercilessly make fun of her mother for being American yeah and I generally don't pull this card but I'm like she did give birth to you <laughs> right like, like her blood is in you like, like you are it, also you are half American yeah as much as you would like to not acknowledge that like, it's listen, true we don't like Americans either <laughs> But there's no reason to be <laughs> delusional. Yeah. So Sybil uh, drives off. She's going off on her own. And a bunch of her family gathers to see her off, notably not including Lord Grantham. Well, he's probably up in his room weeping about Bates' betrayal <laughs> or something. So yeah. throwing his snuff boxes around at Carson. <laughs> like McGee will come up later and be like, well, Sybil left. And he'll be like, who? <laughs> <laughs> The uh, Dowager Countess has been summoned to tea with Cousin Isabel. That was why she left when Sybil ah. was packing. But she's there with Isabel and Dr. Clarkson, uh, defending her choice to prevent Molesley and William from getting called up to go fight in the war. Unfortunately, this is all happening in front of Molesley, who yeah. in his capacity as butler is required to be there while they entertain. Yeah. This seems very insensitive to me. <laughs> yeah. But Cousin Isabel correctly insists that in a war, there can be no special cases because everyone is a special case to someone. And in a war, class distinctions and, you know, pulling these kind of strings is unacceptable. Right. Dr. Clarkson agrees sort of begrudgingly. Like, yeah. you can just always tell that he's like, I would love to give you what you want, old lady grandpa. <laughs> yeah. Because you just well, are so, you are so belligerent. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Isabel's right to be upset because her son mm-hmm. is on the front. And I get all that. And, and... Like, well, and presumably enlisted. Right. I mean, you know. Yeah. And I mean, and I totally get what she's saying, and I can't say that she's wrong per se, but I also can't say that the Dowager Countess was wrong either. Because guess what? This entire war is complete bullshit. Mm-hmm. And everybody that they send to the front is dying for no reason. Well, and the thing when I was doing the research for the uniforms, I mean, they went into this for like a year with pith helmets. Yeah. I'm like, I don't understand how you don't understand that bullets go through, like, this leather and canvas hat. Yeah. How do you not understand? No, and I mean, and I'm sure that I will get into this in some repeats history in the future, but the the way this war was run makes the assassination of Franz Ferdinand look like a well-oiled machine. Uh-huh. Like, they were just... Everybody involved was just was just stupid. No, I mean, and I guess, you know, I'm like a bleeding heart pacifist anyway. So, I mean, I also sympathize with the Dowager Countess. But in this universe, if we're, you know, taking it all at face value, because clearly Julian Fellows has a very strong opinion about patriotism and doing your bit for the war and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. uh, I think he presumably lived through World War Two. So that's a very... Yeah. It's a very British thing. Yeah. Particularly yeah. for that generation. Right. Because uh, you can say what you want about the greatest generation in America, mm-hmm. but the greatest generation in Britain, like, they were under siege for years. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I understand where he's coming from, but I'm interested to learn how stupid this war actually was, since apparently I remember nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like I say, I totally think Isabel, you know, is right. To make that, to insist that this be, you know, yes, corrected. I don't fault well, her for that. You know, there's no such thing as a black and white morality about this. I don't. Yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. Because the Dowager Countess, you know, is trying to preserve these men's families, right? 
because their their parents don't have anyone else. Right. And, you know, as a parent herself mm-hmm. with an ungrateful son, uh, <laughs> yeah. she wants to keep that going in other, in other places. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but Dr. Clarkson says he will write to the right. war office and correct her statements. Yeah. Mrs. Hughes again tells Carson to uh, take it easy. I think this is, is this back in the Carson cave or I'm never clear exactly on the, how, the many, non, how many yeah. rooms they have because it seems like they both have a pretty decent like sort of suite of rooms that yeah. are theirs. Well, and I had noticed that at one point that basically, oh yeah, because when Mrs. Hughes lets them have her sitting room, like mm-hmm. Mrs. Hughes and Carson are the only people that can entertain downstairs. Yes. That they actually have a room for entertaining mm-hmm. visitors, but in any case, they're in one of one of those rooms down there, um, and they talk about Mr. Bates's departure. And Carson is saying that now he'll have to, you know, take care of Lord Grantham as well as everything else. Mrs. Hughes says not to make jokes about broomsticks and sweeping floors, which we did a lot of. We did <laughs> really more research on this than we strictly should have. <laughs> yeah, because we could not figure out what the heck she was talking about. The, the best we came up with was that there's a proverb that n- a new broom sweeps clean, but an old one knows all the corners, which is maybe relevant, but we're not sure Unless how. they're talking about if they have to get a new valet. Right. And, like, maybe they won't have to deal with all the Bates drama. But, I mean, it's still, yeah. it doesn't seem, because they both seem very genuinely upset that he left, and, you know, Carson says to her, I didn't see this coming. Right. Did you? <laughs> and Mrs. Hughes has a confession to make. I always love when she has a confession. Yes. It's always so like, I don't know, because it seems sincere, but she's like, well, I'm totally going to tell you. I've, yeah. been, I've been waiting. I was saving it up. Well, and then Mr. Carson says that if I was a gentleman, I wouldn't want to know. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, he isn't a gentleman. Because mm-hmm. Carson, as much as he uh, you know, identifies with upstairs, he knows that he's, he doesn't have those same responsibilities. Exactly. Yeah. So she she sets up to tell him what she heard through the grate in her capacity as Oracle. (laughs) See Sybil arriving at the hospital where some wounded and legless men are doing calisthenics out in the yard. Presumably a preview of the horrors she is to endure in her capacity as auxiliary nurse. Yes. Sybil makes some comment about, you know, leaving Branson behind. He's driven her in, so he's, you know making sure she gets in all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Branson tells Sybil it's harder for him to lose her than it is for her to lose him. Which I think is a little presumptuous. But then he weirdly declares his love for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, which we had an inkling of in the finale of the previous season. And presumably the last right. two years he's been smirkily nurturing <laughs> his love. Yeah. So she says she's flattered. but And then he says not to make fun of him. He says... Uh, Posh people say they're flattered when they're about to tell you no. Yeah. And uh, she snarked that that sounds much more like the Branson that she knows. <laughs> but, you know, pointedly does not love. Yeah, yes. Uh, anyway, he says not to make fun of him because it's cost him all he's got to say these things, which, you know, he's still got his Wizard of Oz coat. Well, except he doesn't think he does. He says that he'll hand in his notice when he gets back. You know, I mean, he, he is risking his job and That's his livelihood by, by saying this. Well, anyway, but Sybil tells him not to do that because she's not going to tell her family that he is being a moron, <laughs> which I think is much sweeter than the situation uh, calls for. Yes. But I would also like to point out that neither Sybil nor Branson pretends like their differing statuses should make a difference or shouldn't make a difference. They're both, unlike, say, Mary and Matthew, who act like it shouldn't make a difference, Sybil and Branson are well aware that, yes, their different yeah. statuses well, and, are relevant. And, and, you know, again... 
I have to hand it over to the actors in this scene because I think they do a really good job. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, for them, their situations are so different. Matthew's just not what Mary always expected. Whereas Branson mm-hmm. would be the complete opposite of what Sybil would have expected. Right, right. Uh, although if everyone she knows is dead, I'm not sure that she'll have much of a choice in the end. Right. But I mean, for them, it's it's such a reality and it so permeates all of their interactions that neither of them even feels the need to bring it up. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to take a look at. Yeah, yeah. Back at the front, Thomas is carrying a stretcher uh, in one of the trenches there's an explosion and they drop the stretcher and are sitting, you know, just sort of being in agony. Yeah, I wonder, was the guy already dead on the stretcher? It, like, the impression I got was that, like... Was, when, when the stretcher falls, they just leave him there. The, they, they do, and... Dead men tell no tales. <laughs> right. Well, and I sort of feel like, you know, he's been a stretcher bearer on the front for two years. I would imagine he's become somewhat callous yeah. to the people that he's bearing, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, his his co-carrier on, on the other end of the stretcher hands him a cigarette and they talk about how they had both thought that being in the metal, medical corps would be a safe gig for them and how wrong they were. <laughs> Thomas's scheme has failed once again. And he talks about how it's just luck and if a bullet's got your name on it, and then bam, he gets shot. Yeah, uh, his Brody helmet did not work at all. No. I mean, that's the thing that's crazy to me that they thought they were that effective because they're basically like a boating hat. Yeah. And they only come down about halfway on your head. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I mentioned this before, but the, the German helmets had much better steel. Mm. So, I yeah. mean, you know, these were probably as effective as, like, really strong tin compared to the German steel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, I mean, it's just, it's it's very scary. And yeah. Thomas is very much affected because, yeah. you know, as... he was three feet away from this guy. Yeah. We got to Lord Grantham. He's at his regimental dinner in Richmond, and he is blabbing to some old guy with a mustache <laughs> about how he no longer feels like a fraud. And uh, the old guy with a mustache is essentially like, oh, but of course you're a fraud, old fellow. <laughs> <laughs> old chap. <laughs> yeah. So Mosley goes to see Dr. Clarkson, much to Dr. Clarkson's surprise. And he tells him that he actually does have issues with his lungs. Wink. Yes. They both recognize that he is, of course, lying, but Dr. Clarkson agrees and says, okay, he he will tell the war office about William, but not about Molesley. I don't get what Dr. Clarkson would do that for. I think Dr. Clarkson is of my point of view that he's seeing, he spent two years seeing a bunch of people come back torn up from the war when they come at all, and is in no mood to send anyone over there that he doesn't have Fair to. Enough. I mean, that's, you know... Well, I guess, you know, I mean, we'll get into this more because there's, there's a lot of debate about series two and whether it's, whether it's worse than series one or how much worse <laughs> it is than series one. And I still really enjoy it. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we should make that clear from the outset. We're not yeah. doing this because we don't like the show. Right. And because we didn't, like, watch it all in two days. Yeah. But I just wish that there was a little bit more time to examine people's individual reactions to the war mm. because the scope of the show opens up so much Yeah, in the second series. It's really hard to gauge how everybody's feeling about things. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to, you know, it, there has to be a lot of telling and not a lot of showing about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's just unfortunate that we're, we're kind of getting an expanded view of these people, but it's still very limited. 
and you know we don't get a whole lot of the emotional fallout in a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know we'll we'll keep we'll monitor that as the situation warrants. Uh, back at the regimental dinner, Lord Grantham asks the man he's been talking to, who we think is the General Robertson. Uh, there's a General Robertson right. credited for the episode. We're assuming it's this guy. Right, right. So Lord Grantham is asking when his North Riding volunteers will go out to the front, and General Robertson says, soon. Lord Grantham stands up and says he's as ready as they'll ever be. I'm assuming he's drunk. <laughs> General Robertson is mystified because, as he thought was obvious, he informs Lord Grantham <laughs> that his position is honorary yeah. and only meant to lift spirits on the home front. And they right. all, you know, all the generals thought they'd get a kick out of having the Lord <laughs> Lieutenant at their table. Yes. And I'm like, don't you guys have any girly mags or something <laughs> lying around? Like, isn't that more traditional? They, they get bored of those. Anyway, uh, so then he's like, oh, there's Taxi Cavendish. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, that is a made up name. That is not a guy you don't need to go talk to him but uh, i don't i don't blame him that's just what general robinson does every time he's in an awkward situation (laughs) taxi old chap uh anyway we get a shot of lord grantham looking very depressed he's lost his valet and his dreams of military greatness all in one day it's true O'Brien is dressing with G, and they're discussing Lady Sybil and also the war. O'Brien's getting letters from Thomas, and McGee says, oh, is he well? And I'm like, yeah, he's fucking fantastic. What do you think? You know, maybe Lord Grantham is the only one who understands what a war is, <laughs> on second thought. <laughs> yeah. Look out, what's he doing? <laughs> Trying not to die? But, you know, McGee's all, like, you know, making nice about Thomas, and I'm like, were you never informed that he's a shitheel? She's all, like, warm and fuzzy about him. I, I'm like, this, pro- is, this is good old Thomas. They're only the size of a hamster at that stage, <laughs> Barrow. Like, I know you didn't hear him say that, yeah. but he did say it. Yeah. And he stole a bunch of your wine. But she gets all her information from O'Brien, so. That's true. So she probably thinks Thomas is a Boy Scout or something. <laughs> yeah. Lord Grantham is uh, getting ready for bed with Carson in his dressing room, and he's calling Bates selfish and, you know, being all fourth grade about everything. Yeah. Carson has a, has a moment of pause, but then he explains to Lord Grantham that Bates is actually the opposite of selfish, i.e. stupid. <laughs> and uh, he actually left to prevent the Granthams from being engulfed in scandal. Right. And Carson, though he's not a gentleman, knows better than to tell Lord Grantham <laughs> the cause of this particular scandal. Right. Uh, although I think he presumably thinks that Lord Grantham has heard about the, the story. Oh, right, because McGee said that she would tell him. Yes. But, yes. you know, I don't know. You would have to do a whole separate podcast to track... <laughs> the information that comes out of the house and gets put back in. Yeah. Uh, we need code breakers. But in case. any case, everybody's well aware not to mention anything involving vaginas around Lord oh, Grantham. yes. That's <laughs> been, <laughs> it's been well established. Carson then finds Ethel kneeling down in the dark, dusting an electrical outlet. Which seems totally safe. <laughs> I'm no scientist. <laughs> right. And there is, of course, another prank from that wacky old Miss O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> who told her that Carson normally does that, but asked her to take care of it for the night. Carson tells her to stop being so gullible. Yeah. And, you know, I do have to say, though, bully for them making O'Brien, like, 25% likable. Because <laughs> yeah. I am just, like, rooting for her to grind this uppity ginger into the dust. <laughs> like, I don't have the time. There's a war on. 
Shut up. <laughs> we want Gwen back. We do. So Lord Grantham is uh, getting ready to get into the bed that he still scandalously shares with McGee. Well, neither of them is very smart. <laughs> this is true. Uh, he tells her that he is bad-tempered, ungrateful, and worthless. We can't agree more. <laughs> That's right. And uh, they talk a little bit about uh, Sir Richard Carlyle. Yeah, and it's so weird because Lord Grantham says that it's great that he has a sense of irony that Mary wants to invite a hawkish purveyor of newspaper scandal into their house. Right. And I'm not entirely sure how it's that ironic. Because as far as he knows, the rumors about Mary were wholly unsubstantiated. Right. He's been successfully kept in the dark by everyone. Right. Not that that's hard. Right. But nonetheless. Uh, so, it, you know, it's it may just be sloppy writing there. So, ding. Yeah. 573. <laughs> yeah, that's just weird. But anyway, you know, he is not pleased at the prospect of Sir Richard Carlyle uh, coming to their house. Yeah. And I mean, perhaps neither of them knows what ironic means. Yeah. So. They're the Alanis Morissettes of <laughs> 1916. Yes. It's like rain <laughs> on your shooting day. <laughs> it's a free ride when you fired your chauffeur. <laughs> It's the good advice that Bates just didn't take. <laughs> and who would have thought it's Carson? <laughs> You're welcome, Internet. <laughs> Can't wait till we put our album out. <laughs> Songs of Downton. <laughs> Anna comes into the room, which... She shares her with, room, not right, right. Grantham's room. Uh, sorry, good point. Anna comes into her room, which she now shares with Ethel, which until Boo. this point had not occurred to me that. Of well, course, Ethel was complaining about it before because in her last place she got her own room. Yeah, um, which her last place was apparently like you know a tent, as far as everybody <laughs> in Downton's concerned. <laughs> but yeah, Ethel's there crying because everybody's being so mean to her just because she's a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, Anna's also crying, by the way. Yeah, for much better reason. Yeah, it's like if she cried every time O'Brien was mean to her, like she'd <laughs> yeah. never get anything done. <laughs> you know, Ethel is like, oh, don't you have dreams? And Anna's like, yes, I just know that mine are never going to come true. Yeah, it's too bad uh, Ethel won't learn that lesson. <laughs> yeah. Up in her room, Mary is kneeling down next to her bed when Edith barges in looking for her book, which again, why do they always hang out in there? Yeah. Like, nobody wants to see Ethel. Sorry, this is the episode where I start saying Ethel when I mean Edith and vice versa. So just know that that's going to happen. All right. Um, anyway, but, you know, you don't want Edith coming in at all hours to be like, oh, I left a book. Oh, is this your private correspondence? Yeah. Ooh la la. Yeah. Anyway, Edith accuses Mary of praying. And yeah. Mary's all like, no, I wasn't. Which yeah. isn't praying a perfectly respectable thing to do. Uh, apparently not. Anyway, Mary just is like, get out of my room. Then she goes back. Yes, she totally is praying. Yes. She has a very nice photograph of Matthew, which yeah. I kind of wonder where she got it from. Because it's him in his uniform. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. She just like was like, hey, Cousin Isabel, can you break me off a piece of that? Like, I just <laughs> need it for my scrapbook. I, I don't Engagements know. Engagements I Have Ruined. A scrapbook <laughs> by Mary Crawley. <laughs> 
anyway, uh, so she's looking in the photo of Matthew and she's praying and she's telling God, I don't have much credit with you, but if I've ever done anything good, keep him safe. Yeah. And all I wrote down is sob in all caps and I'm getting all teary again. It's, it's very, it's going to be a very weepy season here on up yours <laughs> downstairs. It is. No, but you know, it's just, it's nice to see Mary not being selfish for a change. Of course, you always thought she wouldn't be. <laughs> I see your patience has been rewarded. Yeah. Team Mary. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the trenches, Matthew is walking around. Some guy is playing an accordion to make sure that you're aware that you're watching World War One mm-hmm. happen. Um, <laughs> it might be Lady in the Tramp. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matthew comes across Thomas again, who invites him into a little tiny dugout for some tea. He has managed to, uh, Thomas has managed to track down some condensed milk and sugar. Yeah, and Matthew is like, I don't even want to know where you got that. Yeah. But they, uh, they reminisce about the old days at Downton. Which I don't think they ever spoke to each other, did they? I mean, we never saw it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he handed him drinks at various times. <laughs> Thomas is like, I don't believe I ever tried to blackmail you. I'll have to remedy that when the war is over. <laughs> Matthew's like, if I don't die first. <laughs> If I don't come back, blackmail my mother. (laughs) (laughs) But Thomas fills Matthew in on Downton, because he's been corresponding with O'Brien, and also asks uh, about, he hears the hospital's busy and wants to know if there's any way he could get transferred there. Matthew says that, well, he'd have to get sent home from the front first, and then would have to pull some strings, and then, you know, uh, leaves. Thomas does say something very nice, and this is weird because, again, we're talking about Thomas. They're only the size of a hamster at that stage, <laughs> right. Barrow. You know, he says, what would my mother say? Me having the future Earl of Grantham to tea. Yeah. And, I mean, you have, like, I don't know. That just gets me somehow. Yeah. Upwardly yeah. mobile, middle-class person that I am. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, it's just very sweet. And then it makes it all the more kind of effective because Matthew leaves and Thomas, you know, salutes him. Mm-hmm. And he just, like, starts hyperventilating and, like, breaking down. Because, I mean, presumably he's been kind of nurturing this idea of maybe I can get back to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, that has now been shattered. Mm -hmm. So he he walks out into the trench and he kind of goes off by himself and he pulls out a cigarette and a lighter. And I'm like, okay, we've seen how this goes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but he doesn't actually light the cigarette. Instead, he holds the lighter up above the trench. Yeah. And gets shot in the hand. Yeah. Uh, at which point he clutches it in pain, but then he says, thank you for my deliverance. And that's the end of the show. Yeah. And that's a really fucked up place to leave it. Yeah, it is. But, uh, you know. War is strange. We've y- come full circle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and that, I think, was really well done in terms of... Agreed. The horrors of war, kind of what it drives people to do, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So I think, you know, they actually, yeah. you know, as we were saying, the, the trench stuff is all really well executed. Agreed. And and I have to say, I Much mean... Much better than Black Adder Goes Forth or whatever. <laughs> uh, from a production standpoint, yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and I have to say, there's, certainly there's more stuff to come with the series and whatever, but I really liked this episode. I mm-hmm. think partly, you know, we took that week off. 
Um, yeah, I think that that is helpful. Yeah, <laughs> we weren't we weren't uh, on Downton Overload anymore. Right, but then just you know watching that again, it was like wow, I really do like this show. Yeah, well, and for all you know, I'm sort of complaining that they don't get to sort of delve into everybody. There is really clear evidence of almost everybody having exhibited some sort of character growth. Mm-hmm. I think kind of with the exception of McGee and Lord Grantham to an extent. Yeah, uh, you know, there's a few people, but everybody seems to in the two years since we last saw them. Yeah, they've they. They've all kind of come to new new places yeah. and new understandings of the world, which, yeah. you know, that's, I think, what you hope for in a television series. Yeah, agreed. And rarely happens, yeah. as has been documented by many television writers. <laughs> so now it's time for the Abbey Awards Hooray. for this episode. Our Gibson guy for the episode, uh, it's wartime, so it's kind of hard to give out the Gibson Awards. Yeah. Uh, yeah. People are cutting back. People are wearing a lot of black. Yeah. Uh, but we're actually going to give it to Lord Grantham for looking so snazzy in his uniform. Yeah. Which, you know, since he's not an active duty, we're kept spotlessly clean. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, you know, he doesn't win much around here. Yeah. So we thought we'd, we'd give him a little. Yeah, that's true. A little nudge. I did like the uh, turquoise number that the Dowager Countess oh, was absolutely. wearing in one scene. She looked very good. Just, just wanted to mention that. Uh, so next we've got best evasion. There were a lot of evasions in this episode. Yeah. Sybil had a ton of evasions. That's right. She evaded telling her parents what was wrong with her. She evaded basically addressing Branson's ill-considered declaration of love. Yeah. She was just like, oh, well, I'm going to go be a nurse, so <laughs> I don't have to talk to any of you anymore, right? <laughs> yeah. It's just the break she's been looking for. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, Mary and Matthew evade making out. The whole episode, which is pretty impressive. I'm not very good at evading making out with people when that's what I want to do, as you well know. Yeah, but I think I think our our best evasion of the episode is uh, is Mosley. Good old Mosley, man. He, he evaded his way out of the trenches, and it's a much more direct. E- like he evaded by being direct, essentially. Yeah, you know. Yeah, well done, Mosley. He could always get a what did he have before encephalitis? Erysipelas. Ah. Erysipelas. Erysipelas. Not Erysipelas. <laughs> and <titilitis? laughs> And best overbite. In an upset, Ethel wins best overbite. Oh, the how about that? The upwardly mobile ginger, uh, not to be stopped by her lower class status, has a really, really developed overbite. That's right. She wants the best overbite and she's not ashamed to admit it. Well done. All right. And now to the award you've all been waiting for. That's right. On the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smiths for this episode, how fares our girl Mags? I'm thinking it's five Maggie Smiths. I think I think you're right. Yeah. I thought four the first time we went through it. Mm-hmm. But then the second time, she didn't miss a step. She didn't. She wasn't... Uh, we didn't feel like she was wrong about anything, which hasn't always been true. Mm-hmm. Her initial, you know, opening triumphant entrance... Oh, absolutely. ...was awesome. Stellar. Yeah. Yeah. That line about Great Aunt Roberta was fantastic. Mm-hmm. The line about Greek drama. Oliver Zings at Lavinia. I think that's what pushes it over the <laughs> yeah. top. Is that she looks like totally like... She's totally like fading innocence. And like Lavinia's just like, what? Yeah. What? <laughs> like, don't under- <laughs> Who is this gargoyle? <laughs> so, well done, Maggie. It's great to see you back on top where you belong. Yeah, that is right. And that does it for Series 2, Episode 1 of Downton Abbey. We will be back with you next week. And until then, up Up yours, downstairs.
put that in your pipe and smoke it.
put that in your pipe and smoke it.